the blast from our past network. Hey everyone, co-host Corey here. I just wanted to take a quick second and say thank you to all of our Patreon supporters. Without you, podcasting after dark would not be possible. If you would like to help the show grow, please consider signing up at patreon.com slash podcasting after dark. You can also support the show by purchasing one of our awesome t-shirt designs on our merch store at podcastingafterdark.com or by picking up a copy of Seven Winters Alone by David Irons on paperback, hardback, or Kindle. Just search for Seven Winters Alone on Amazon or click on the link in the show notes. A free way to help out is to leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Those reviews are huge for us and really helps get the show in front of new listeners. Again, thank you all so much for the love and support you've given us over these past few years. It really means the world to us. Lock your doors, close your windows, turn out your lights, for chills and thrills await you. It's time for Podcasting After Dark with your hosts, Corey Stevenson and Zach Schaefer. Stay with a friend, say your prayers as grisly ghouls close in to seal your doom. Tonight's episode, Them, starring James Whitmore, Edmund Gwen, and Joan Weldon. What's up, everybody? Welcome to this week's episode of Podcasting After Dark. I am one half of the pad team, Corey, a.k.a. Sleazy C. Joined with me, as always, is my brother from another mother, Zach, the total snack at Schaefer. And this week, we are going into the way, way back machine, all the way to 1954, and we're talking about them. Them, 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 let's talk about them. Do you know that Rupert Holmes song, Him? Him, 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 what's she gonna do about him? Basically about, like, finding out his girlfriend is cheating on him. Oh, no. He left his smokes behind. <laughs> I, Zach, I do want to ask, do you think, <laughs> how many times do you think that they said them in this movie? I'm going to say six. <laughs> I think it was a lot more than that. I think a you could actually than turn, turn this movie into a drinking game because the writers definitely have a lot of fun inserting them anywhere that they can. Yes. Um, <laughs> but before we jumped in into the whole you know breakdown and review and everything about this film, uh, Zach, what is your experience with them? Very minimal. Uh, I saw it when I was a kid. Could have been on Creature Features, of all places. Uh, but that's it. I only saw it once when I was a kid and watched it the other day thanks to you. That's my that's my backstory on them. How about <laughs> okay. you? Um, a bit more extensive. Uh, this was uh, an early favorite of mine. Um, on our unwrapping, on the wrap-up after dark when we sort of unboxed unboxed this uh, I mentioned that it kind of it's like my grandpa movie and you know I've been thinking about it and I don't know if actually I ever saw it with my grandpa um I might have back in the day but I think the reason it reminds me so much of him is because I grew up talked about it many times before latchkey kid in the 80s um my mom you know if she was going to go out on a date one night or if she was going to do whatever i would usually go over and stay at my grandparents house because they were they lived like five minutes away 
And I lived on Nick at Night, man. I adored uh, Mr. Ed growing up. Um, I loved Hogan's Heroes. And now that show wasn't, I remember that show being in color, but I do remember watching a lot of black and white stuff at my grandpa's house. And I, I loved it as a kid, especially when they would show like some sci-fi stuff. And I do think that I probably maybe watched this movie with him at one point, but I think the biggest connection is, is that, um, uh, Ben Peterson, the, the character, Ben Peterson, uh, the Sergeant, um, he reminded me of my grandpa as a kid. He kind of looks mm. like my grandpa. <laughs> Apparently he wore, uh, uh, lifts on the movie. So, so he's kind of like was short, like my grandpa, but he was also like in world war two, like my grandpa was and everything. So I think I kind of, kind of merged this movie and sort of, it became this, you know, Frankenstein monster of nostalgia. Um, but at the end of the day, I still have immense nostalgia for this film, even though I can't technically pinpoint like the first time I ever saw it um, or anything like that. Uh, but I do know somebody who has seen it for the first time. You showed it to Bodhi. Yeah, he loved it. He really liked it a lot, actually. Wow. Okay. Uh, for a movie that is very exposition heavy this the notes this breaking down took a lot longer than i ever anticipated it would but um that wasn't a problem for him he he enjoyed it well i think the 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 slow parts in the in the middle definitely you know dragged for him but yeah. uh overall i think he loved the the big monster the concept of the big monsters and the action and just the, the 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 special effects for its time he appreciates a classic film he's a he's a you know a budding cinephile, I think, and um, I think he appreciated it the best he could for an eight-year-old perspective. I, I mean, dude, like, that's freaking awesome. You are raising him, you know, so right. The fact that an eight-year-old in 2023 can at least enjoy and appreciate a movie from 1954 is yeah. pretty remarkable. Absolutely. I totally agree. But I don't think it should be overlooked how important this movie is to like the history of cinema it wasn't the first giant monster movie to be made but it did sort of solidify and and really push into the 50s the giant monster features and everything like that this was a huge hit for warner brothers who almost passed on it um they they were going to pass on it until paramount paramount started showing interest and they were like oh well, well then let's let's do let's us do it then and you know they were actually going to film it in color but they pulled the budget like right at the last minute forcing them to shoot it in black and white personally me i love it in black and white i don't know if it would have stood the test of time if it was in that technicolor look you know yeah, I totally agree. I think uh, color would have tainted it big time and really diluted the the effect that the film has overall. I did appreciate the opening color title card, though. That was cool. Yes. And a surprise. I forgot that they had one bit of color in this movie. Me too, dude. When, I, when it first came up, I was like, oh, my God, is this movie in color? And I was like, oh, no, no, it's just just this opening title card, which I think you're correct. I think it has a lot of punch to it considering the rest of the movie is in black and white. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's great. I, and I'm glad they, they went with their gut and yet again, studio flexing its muscles when they hear someone else is into it. It's like a, it's like a guy who's like, eh, maybe I should uh, dump my girlfriend. And then people are suddenly into the girl. He's like, Oh, I better not dump her. Or 
when you're a kid, I know you've had these friends, you're playing with a toy and they're like, oh, I want to play with that. And it's only because you're playing with it. You know, it's not because they wanted to play with it. It's just because you have it. Yeah. Those assholes are future Hollywood executives. <laughs> exactly. Um, but when I and when I first you know suggested this, I was like, man, I guess we're probably not going to have a lot of people to talk about in the cast and crew because it's so old. Wrong. Wrong. <laughs> Wrong. Wrong. <laughs> there are a lot of uh, people to talk about in this movie, I'd say. so. And we have a pretty beefy breakdown because it's a kind of a dialogue-heavy movie. So uh, you want to just jump into the, the cast and crew? Let's do it. Let's do it. James Whitmore, who plays Sergeant Ben Peterson. Shawshank Redemption. Yeah, yeah, dude. That's, that's all you need to say about him. I mean, he's had a storied career, but but that was probably his biggest biggest like final film that he did yes he played Not final uh, film but you know biggest like probably his biggest movie in his twilight career oh uh, well there's another one too worth mentioning we'll get to that yeah like let's just call it really quick because i mean we all love shawshank we, we have a lot of shawshank fans out there um he plays he played brooks uh you know the guy who got out of jail and then wound up hanging himself i think i i think it was like last year or the year before that that i realized that he was brooks you know the guy from them was brooks from shawshank redemption and my fucking mind was blown i remember when shawshank was getting all of the rightful fanfare the rightful fanfare and they were i think he his name got brought up uh with his performance which was outstanding and they showed clips from them like you know way back when he was in this great B movie, sci, you know, sci-fi horror. So, and then in a, a couple of years after Shawshank, he pops up in the Relic, and I was like, oh yeah, a movie that you and I both love, uh, guys and gals. It will come to podcasting after dark one day. Um, not sure if it'll be Zach or me breaking it down, but we both very much enjoy that movie, and we will be covering it on the show. And I'm just this age right now when I realized that yeah, he he played the doctor in that as well. So now I really want to rewatch the Relic. Yeah, we gotta we gotta do that one. That it's supposed to come out on Blu-ray at some point. It got advertised over a year ago that it was coming out on Blu-ray, so it's coming. It, did it pop up on Dawn of the Dawn of the Discs? I assume, right? Yeah, yeah. I don't know if Paramount's going to release it or if it's going to get a Kino treatment, but it is coming down the pipe. Okay, well, whenever whenever it comes out, we, yeah, we're definitely going to cover it at some point. So, Edmund Gwen plays Doctor Harold Medford. Um, yeah, I mean. I forgot that he was uh, Chrissy Kringle in Miracle on 34th Street. The, the original one, yeah, the 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 first one. Because didn't they remake that in, like, the 70s or 80s or something? Or... I think in the 80s. Okay. Yeah, yeah but that was th- this was the one with uh, Natalie Wood, I think, in it. Okay, um, okay. And he's, yes. of course, the, 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 the jolly man himself. Yeah, yeah, no, I mean, that that's huge. I don't know... I don't know if I've ever seen that movie in its entirety, but of course I have seen the famous shots of like him talking to the little girl or whatever, you know, as Santa Claus. And and again, it wasn't until I was, you know, breaking this movie down and kind of just casually uh, going through IMDb when I was like, oh, my God, that he was fucking Miracle on 34th Street. So like another big fucking name in this movie, you know, big name, notable actor for his time, for sure, yeah. for mm-hmm. sure. Uh, Joan Weldon plays Dr. Patricia Medford. And the daughter of Dr. Harold Medford. Which was she, a pain in the fucking ass for me when I was doing the breakdowns, by the way. Two Dr. Medfords, you know. 
Oh, doctor, 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 doctor. Uh, yet she, uh, she kind of tapped out on acting in, uh, in the 1950s actually, but, uh, but she passed away last, well, two years ago. Wow. Uh, I think her last, but she, last movie she did was in 1958. Okay. Okay. So, so this is, this looking through her credits, this is probably, I mean, she did a lot of Western stuff, but this is probably her, her biggest, most notable thing. Oh yeah. No doubt. No doubt okay. about that. Uh, another guy who, well, I was I was trying to be diplomatic when I did the intro to this uh, by not listing, you know, having a balance of male and female. So mm. I, uh, but I did not put James Arness in this uh, in, in the intro. But he is, you know, rightfully fourth build in in IMDb. James Arness, the legend that is James Arness, plays. Yeah. Robert Graham, not to be confused with Bob Graham, the uh, isn't that a preacher or something like that? I, I think so. Yeah, yeah. A- FBI agent uh, Robert Graham. Um, yeah, but uh, dude, he did like tw- like what was it like th- thirty years, twenty five years on Gunsmoke as playing like the- Matt Dillon. Yeah, <laughs> but fans of of you know this show probably know him more so from the thing from another planet from nineteen fifty one. Yeah, I mean he's an iconic actor, and kind of kind of an interesting actor. I wouldn't call him, uh, you know, handsome by Hollywood standards, Mm-mm. but but he had one hell of a run as uh, you know Matt Dillon, no relation on Gunsmoke, <laughs> and yeah, of course the the thing from another world. Yeah, I mean, that's obviously a, a huge one for us because, um, you know, going through the Carpenter factor and obviously Carpenter did a remake of of the thing um, in his own right. But but that was a huge that movie was a huge influence on Car- Carpenter himself. I almost wonder if you and I should uh, should review it before we're done with the Carpenter factor just to just to kind of know where Carpenter came from, because he's one of the biggest movies he sort of cites, you know, that and, um, you know, uh, Westerns and stuff. Yeah, that's that's potential. Potential. That's potential. (laughs) I was never a big fan of it, by the way. I have seen Thing from Another Planet. When I was younger, I would like to give it a revisit, but I I didn't like it as much as the the one we like, the John Carpenter one, you know? It just, I was surprised that it didn't have a lot of the elements that the John Carpenter one did have, like the shape-shifting shit. Yeah, I mean it's 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 like uh, Invasion of the Body Snatchers, the original, and then the '70s one. Vast improvement on the original. Yeah, yeah, I'm I'm with you there. That's why you and I always say we don't ever just can't just blanketly blanketly say we don't like remakes because we like a lot of remakes more so than the original film. And, and Invasion of the Body Snatchers from the '70s for me is the same way. I like that one better than the original, and I like uh, John Carpenter's The Thing better than Thing from Another World. Yeah, I mean, uh, outside of the fog <clears throat> and <laughs> Rob Zombie's Halloween, uh, you, we you know, yeah, we can. It depends. You gotta you gotta be open. You gotta have an open mind. Got to, um, baby. Got to. There, there. You know, the rest of the cast. I don't know if it's worth noting per se. There may be some uh, cameos that pop up. There's actors that'll pop up throughout this uh, breakdown that stood out. One in particular to me, and then a couple to Corey. So we'll get to those as we get to them. Yeah, that's a good call. I because I noted them in my breakdown. Uh, two of them that I sort of noticed, and I think you said you noticed somebody else. I don't know if I've even saw them in there. So it'll be fun to surprise me with with that one there. But 
we should discuss um, the director, Gordon Douglas. Um, he was a huge director at the time when he was tapped for this. And, uh, you know, scrolling through his IMDb stuff, it's not a lot of stuff that I've seen. It's a lot of, you know, Western uh, type of stuff and everything. Um, you know, just I don't even recognize a lot of the posters. But I do know that he was kind of a big name and a big deal at the time but i mean we're so far removed from it at this point i just i don't know you know well i will say he his last movie he directed was viva knievel starring evil knievel in 1977 so that's worth noting uh, i remember seeing that way back when and i'd never had the action figure and i really wish i had did uh, he did some exploitation movies like slaughter's big ripoff starring jim brown and and ed mcmahon what? Yep. What? Slaughter's big ripoff. Wait, Ed McMahon was an actor before he was just a, a, a like a yes man. He sure was. Holy he sure was. Shit. That it's actually it's a really good uh, black exploitation movie. Okay. Slaughter's big ripoff. Okay. Um, and then you know he's done movies like uh, Skin Game with James Garner and Lou Gossett Jr. and They Call Me Mister Tibbs. And uh, Lady in Cement, which is one of my favorite Frank Sinatra, Raquel Welch, rest in peace, movies. Um, Lady in Cement's really good. In Like Flint with James Coburn and his badass as well. So he's actually, he's got an amazing resume of just classic 60s and 70s movies. I was going to call out In Like Flint, but I think, uh, I've never seen it, but I think I know about it from Quentin Tarantino, because I think, you know, one of his movies, True Romance or something, drops it like that. Like, I'll be In Like Flint or something like that, you know? Oh, yeah. Yeah, totally. It, yeah. You got you got to check it out at some point if you ever get the urge to watch a, a classic 60s and 70s movie. And Up Periscope is another one worth mentioning. That movie is like a fun action with James Garner, when James Garner was like a, a stud in the in the 50s. No shit. Okay, so yeah, so I guess Gordon Douglas had a, has a bit more credits under his belt that uh, that I should go check out. Uh, top of the list is definitely Slaughter's Big Ripoff, though. Oh yeah, no doubt, no doubt about that. Um, I mean, yeah. So th- this film, you know, it's it's classic cinema, so it's got a particular look and sound to it, and um, and, and an acting style to it. Totally, totally. Like it's it's this is way out of our typical wheelhouse for what we do on the on, for what we do on the show yes very much so uh, this could be the oldest movie that we've discussed um now in my breakdown uh, this movie has a lot of exposition and you know again you got to sort of take things with a grain of salt uh, of the time and i do think as an art form uh we as a society has gotten better about maybe hiding uh exposition inside of dialogue and making dialogue more natural or or, or whatnot so you know, if you've never seen a movie from this era, it takes a little bit of getting used to. But there is, even in 2023, there is a charm about the way they act and, and the way, you know, they, they sort of say their lines. It's kind of fast and everything. Um, and they say some, like, I'm going to have to try to say them because there's, I've, I wrote it down. And there's lines that are just really not well written. And But these actors, they spit it out no problem and look yep. confident doing it. And that's what I think was kind of... The most, aside from the special effects, I found it the most impressive was how confidently these actors spit out some of these insane lines. Yeah, no, it's 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 the style, and they had the and they had to deliver with a certain cadence to their, you know, 
to, to their lines. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But it's dramatic from the onset. And, you know, as absurd as some of the monsters look, it's like makes Doctor Who's special effects look impressive from the yeah. 70s. Uh, they handle it like beasts. You know, I love it. And and that's what sells it. You know, the, the actors, you know, people talk about how good like Yoda looked in Empire Strikes Back. But what you really need to talk about is how good, how amazingly Mark Hamill acted off of that puppet. You know, so here you have actors selling these silly giant ants. I mean, guys and gals, they're kind of silly, but... They're selling them, and I get pulled in every time. I'm just like, okay, those are giant ants. Um, I do want to put out one disclaimer. About halfway through the movie, there's going to be a scene that is a giant exposition dump. It's like a four-minute presentation that the doctor makes, that Chris Kringle, uh, (laughs) Santa Claus, makes in the middle of the movie. It's all about ants and everything. And I talked to Zach about it, and you you guys will hear about it on Wrap Up After Dark. I talked to Zach and I was like, I didn't transcribe it because I found the clip and I think I'm just going to insert it. So, guys and gals, there will be like a four minute insertion and <laughs> deeper, deeper. Um, but, <laughs> but and feel free to skip it if you want. But you know, it's it's interesting stuff and it's kind of just you know it's there and it sets it sets the the tone for what we sort of need to know. Um, so I am going to insert it there and, and sort of, that'll be that. Uh, but I just wanted to give you guys a heads up on it because it, it it's a rather long clip, but I didn't want to fucking transcribe everything about ants, to be honest with you. No, we were like, let's just play the clip. I think yeah. it's a better call. Uh, I, I do want to point out really quick. The, the composer is Bronislaw Copper or Caper. Um, you know, I, he, uh, obviously most of his, the bulk of his work is in the fifties and sixties. But uh, I could have swore the music cues in the opening credits of this, I heard a similar vibe to them in the monsters in the Monster Squad. Mm. Um, I, I, you know, I think it was just influenced by, could have been influenced by this for sure. Okay, okay, and uh, yeah, I mean, again, guys and gals, this movie was immensely influential because it was immensely popular, and it is pretty much considered to be one of the best giant monster movies from the fifties. So we're, we're kind of tackling the, the cream of the crop of these giant insect films, you know, if you're going to go big, might as well go big with them. I tell you, gentlemen, science has agreed that unless something is done and done quickly, man is the dominant species of life on earth will be extinct within a year. of the President of the United States. Stay in your homes, I repeat. Stay in your homes. Your personal safety, the safety of the entire city, depends upon your full cooperation with the military authorities. Yes, cities, nations, even civilization itself, threatened with annihilation because in one moment of history-making violence, nature, mad, rampant, wrought its most awesome creation. Born in that swirling inferno of radioactive dust, 
were things so horrible, so terrifying, so hideous, there is no word to describe them. We may be witnesses to a biblical prophecy come true, and thus will be destruction and darkness come up in creation, and the beast shall reign over the earth. Yes, the earth, the skies above and the seas below, infested by swarms of nightmare creatures, crueler, deadlier than the armored giants of prehistoric eras. Here is a wild, headlong flight into terror as the desert erupts with the grim battle for survival. Here is a fear-frenzied moment of suspense as mankind totters before a thing that multiplies faster than it can be killed. Here is a desperate plunge into the black depths of the earth where human courage challenges the brute force, the slashing jaws, the poison fangs that guard the subterranean nest where the beast spawns its terrible progeny. To all units, to all units, condition red, grain 267 is the target area. Repeat, condition red, grain 267 is the target area. We can't take a chance. It might poison the whole city. The movie starts with the title logo in red on a black background of the New Mexico desert. As we said, it was originally going to be filmed in color, but they pulled the budget at the last minute. As was the style of the time, the full credits play at the beginning of the movie. Uh, that's something that I don't miss from these older films. I know. I, some, like, do, do you want to have just the movie end at the end like this does with no credits or and get the credits over with in the beginning? I don't know. I can go either way. Um, yeah, this is it's a slow burn in the beginning. It's, it's like a but this takes the place of uh, that terrible AMC intro where N Nicole Kidman looks at you directly in the eyes and freaks you out so i'll take these credits over nicole kidman freaking me out by looking at me exactly and you know over time the credits at the beginning have been shortened but it is still a part of the uh director's guild and everything and the lucas with star wars a new hope you know he petitioned for a special thing for them to for him them to allow him to not have credits at the beginning um what got him sort of not banned or kicked out of the DGA, but sort of not welcome at the DGA, is that he got the permission for A New Hope, but then he kept doing it with Empire Strikes Back and Return of the Jedi, which I can't ever imagine those movies starting with credits like we normally see, you know, over top of scenes and stuff like that. Um, and I think George Lucas made the right choice, but I do think that's what kind of brought down the ire of the MPAA and the Academy and everything. Well, good for George Lucas and it being film should be considered art and not just the same old thing every time. So time to teach an old dog some new tricks and make those credits Disappear. be a little bit more inventive. I, I, rem I, I love uh, what 
David Fincher did with his credits in, in all his movies, like Seven and Fight Club. Yeah. I miss that style where the credits are almost like a, another character in the movie. Like uh, they're almost like a mini art film themselves, you know? Yeah. yeah. I mean, they do that kind of now with the Marvel movies at the end, like the pre-credits before they get to the. Right. Yeah. Uh, you know, like end credit scene. I, I, I appreciate that. It makes it it makes it entertaining while you're sitting and waiting. But some people like to sit through the credits of movies, and uh, I'm one of them. So there you go. Well, and if you ever, I think you have been. I think you and I have seen a movie at the DGA uh, with Jeff uh, one time, and uh, there, they, I remember Jeff warning me, "You don't get up until the credits are over." Like that's it's a respect thing. You know what I mean? Yeah, because a lot of people worked on these movies, and it's you know, yeah, it's just showing respect. Exactly. We now see a two-small-passenger plane flying over the desert. New Mexico State Police is written on the side. The pilot radios to the police car on the road below. Inside the car, we see Sergeant Ben Peterson, played by James Whitmore, riding shotgun with Trooper Ed Blackburn, played by Christian Drake, while he drives. Uh, I didn't recognize uh, Blackburn, Christian Drake, from anything. I didn't either, but I still like the guy. Yeah, th- no, th- th- me too. I was actually going to tack that on at the end but you you said it for me so yeah i thought he was kind of cool though the pilot tells the two officers that he spotted a kid walking through the desert he circles her so they can pinpoint her location peterson and blackburn park their car and call out to the little girl but she seems to be walking in a daze and doesn't hear them sergeant peterson runs up to her and asks what are you doing out here honey but she doesn't even look at him peterson asks what her name is but she doesn't answer He waves his hands in front of her face, but she doesn't even blink. Ben Peterson picks up the little girl and carries her back to the squad car. Blackburn gets a call on the radio from the plane telling them that there's a trailer three miles down the road. Maybe she came from there. Blackburn says they'll go check it out. Ben puts the little girl in the car and says she couldn't have been wandering for too long because she's not sunburned. She looks in shock. He gets in the car and they drive off. The little girl falls asleep in Ben's arms. And I think they do a good job of setting out right away that um, uh, Ben Peterson uh, is is the good guy. He's he's kind of, he's likable and he's going to look out for the little girl. And you know what I mean? Like all the things you need your hero to sort of be right out of the gate. Oh yeah, totally. And the little girl's a really good actor too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she doesn't even fucking blink when he like waves his hand in front of no, her. No, she's good. She's good. Peterson and Blackburn pull up to the site and see a car and a trailer. There doesn't seem to be anyone around. Peterson and Blackburn walk around to the back of the trailer, and it's been completely destroyed. They walk in through the giant hole in the trailer wall and search for signs of life. The inside is in disarray, and Peterson even finds money on the ground. So, you know, it's not a robbery. Yep. Sergeant Ben Peterson finds a, finds a bloody shirt and says that the blood must be 10 to 12 hours old. Okay, sure. These are the these are the things that you just sort of have to roll with, you know. CSI in the desert. <laughs> Back in the day when just your normal beat cops like, ah, this, this is fine. It's ten hours old. I know exactly how old blood is, you know. You can count the rings on it. It's it's ten hours. <laughs> uh, whatever happened here must have happened either last night or early this morning. Blackburn concurs. Peterson tells him to check outside while he keeps looking through the trailer. Ben finds a pistol on the ground and examines it. He also finds a piece of a doll's head and a torn fabric of cloth. Peterson walks through the giant hole and Blackburn says, Sure no traffic accident, was it? Peter says while looking at the hole, This wasn't caved in. It was caved out. 
Did you find anything? Blackburn says no footprints or tire marks. He hands Peterson a uh, sugar cube and says he found, found it close by, along with a few more of them. Blackburn then takes Peterson over the, to the old campfire and shows him an odd print in the sand. He thinks it's a mountain lion print, but Peterson says it's unlike anything he's ever seen. Sergeant Peterson and Blackburn walk back to their car. Ben tells him to put in a call, get fingerprint and melage equipment out here right away, and have the medics come along to pick, pick up the kid. I, I don't know what melage equipment is, but I assume it's some kind of forensics thing. It's a uh, popular term that was used in the 1950s with, uh, I have no fucking clue. <laughs> I was like, I was like, really? You're like, no, no. I got, you're like, how far can I keep this joke going? <laughs> Not very. I it thought was, you were going to say something about Moulin Rouge. <laughs> yes, it was in the Moulin Rouge era. <clears throat> the, the Rouge Bouche. <laughs> As Blackburn puts in the call, Peterson matches the broken doll piece to the one the little girl is holding, and the torn fabric matches her robe, thus confirming she came from the campsite. So, you know, easy enough. We're not going to, it's not going to be a mystery for too long. You know, they're going to move no. past that pretty quick. And I always find it interesting, too. You got to think, man, back in the day, all of these characters from, from Blackburn to, to Ben here, Peterson to later, you know, Bob Graham and everything. These all guys are World War II veterans. Like, the entire police force yeah. back then were all pretty much veterans. So there's no problem with your your local beat cop like Peterson to, like, know how to use a Thompson submachine gun because he had to use one then. And he has no problem using a flamethrower either because they're all fucking trained in that shit, man. It's true. Yeah. yeah Wild times. Yeah. I love it. It's the, these guys, like, legit had to know how to do that stuff. Mm-hmm. There's no like, oh, come on, it's so silly. Well, now, nope, nope, back, makes sense. Yep. And, you know, I don't know if it if it sort of should be noted, but the population of the Earth was like half the size then as it is now. So I don't think like, you know, you had like so many bureaucratic things and everything like that. You know what I mean? Back then it was, it, there wasn't so much stuff like gumming up the system. And yeah, you pretty much... Uh, trusted the guy by his word and then you know what i mean it's just i don't know it was a different time and i'm not saying it was a better time i'm not that's not no, i know yeah that's not what i'm trying to say um because i think in a lot of ways we we very much live in a better time now uh, especially for very specific groups of people and everything but i, know, I was gonna joke i'm like it was the it was the glory days when women couldn't vote and people of color were held down you know what like <laughs> Well, it's just what people of color. There is not a single person of color in this entire movie. I mean, I hope that was not a commentary by the writer. Them are trying to take over the planet. Who? The non-white people? Oof. I mean. I, I hope not. I hope not, too. But, Jesus. I, I, the sad thing is there's, like, a probability that you're correct. And that probability is probably <laughs> higher than 20%. I mean... Yeah, I, I appreciate the. Uh, it, it's like an ant. It's kind of an anti-nuke movie, though, which is good. Right. As as it was sort of the times and everything, you know, you had Godzilla and whatnot, or Gojira back then and everything. Yeah. A lot of anti or or cautionary uh, uh, nuclear tales and stuff like True. that. True. A short time passes and we see a forensics team uh, at the trailer. Someone is taking pictures while another person is making a mold of the strange footprint in the sand. Ben checks on the little girl who's now in the back of an ambulance with a doctor. The doctor asks if Ben knows what happened to, what happened to her or her name. 
He says no and tells the doctor to take good care of her. As they're talking, they hear a loud, shrill chirping. And I, I didn't know what to call it, but thankfully, the subtitles called it a shrill chirping. So oh, I just yes. went with that. Yes. No, that's good. My and dog was perked it. To, my dog perked her ears up when that happened. What is that? Well, apparently, it's just they just took the sound of this, like, uh, I think, like a South American frog. Like, it's just the sound of a frog. That makes sense. Yeah. yeah. Did you recognize that doctor, by the way, the that was helping the girl out? Uh, I weirdly did recognize him, but I swear I didn't dive any further. But I, and I just assumed that it was sort of just he looked like a bald white guy recognition. I didn't know if I actually did. But is he from something? Yeah, his name's William Shalert. Uh, I recognized him as Dr. Greenbush in Inner Space. He's the guy who was checking on Martin Short's character uh, when he was hearing voices in his head. And, he's, and he starts giving the whole speech about, you know, they used to flail the skin off of people when. <laughs> <laughs> I Anyways, seen... he, he's been around for he was in in the heat of the night, a uh, bunch of movies. He he passed away in 2016. But um, but I always will remember him from inner space. He was in over 422 movies and television shows. Damn. Wow. Good. Good for him. And uh, I, I got to rewatch Space. I don't think I've seen it since we watched it at your outdoor party. And that was probably like eight years ago now. <laughs> That's my favorite uh, Joe Dante movie. I yeah. told I fortunately was able to tell Joe Dante that to his face. Did he did he appreciate that? Oh, yeah, totally. Yeah. Awesome. Th- that movie. Uh, th- but there's controversy about that movie. Well, he says it in our interview on two dollar late for you can check that out. Um, but he. But it was originally intended to be a serious drama, like a serious drama thriller. Hmm. Oh, okay. Okay. No shit. Yeah. Oh, go check out that interview for more, guys and gals. Yeah, from LA Comic Con. <laughs> LA Comic Con a few uh, last year. Is that one on? Uh, did you ever put that one out on the feed, or is that just living on your YouTube channel in video form? Oh, we have video and audio. Yeah. Okay. So you can go check out the audio version with 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 some clips. I think there's some clips in there. Yeah, there are. And. Uh, and the, the video feed, which is directly from Comic-Con, L.A. Comic-Con. Anyways, sorry. That's awesome. No, great. I, I love it, buddy. Burbs is still my favorite, but I, I appreciate it. And, you know, I, I got I, I need to be more versed in inner space just because of how much you love it. When we watched it for that party thing, that was probably only the second or third time I'd ever seen it. So Wow. I, yeah. I, I, need to, I need to do better, my friend, at least just for you. You know what I mean? <laughs> it's just I, I love that movie, but, you know, it's not for everybody. Um I'm he was also he's been in he was in matinee Joe Dante's matinee also uh, I wonder if he's been in other films from Joe Dante Joe Dante loves to use the same actors in other movies I don't think so I don't think so well I'm glad I'm glad you called him out dude I didn't know th- uh he looked familiar like I said but I I didn't know why so I just yeah, kind of William moved. Shalert yeah uh and he, I like this I thought this was really cool so the doctor and Ben, uh, sort of, they, they look to the horizon as the that shrill chirping is happening. They kind of can't, you know, figure out what it is. And while their backs are turned to the ambulance, and thus their backs are turned to the little girl, the little girl quietly sits up and looks out into the desert. As the chirping fades away, she quietly lays back down as the two adults speculate what the noise was. They assume it was the wind and never even noticed that the girl sat up. Such a cool scene. Yeah, it's it's a really cool scene and creepy sound, too. Yeah. Ben walks over to the guy making a mold in the sand. He asks what it is, and the guy uh, with the plaster says he doesn't have the faintest idea. 
Ben tells him to hurry before the sandstorm that's picking up covers the print completely. Peterson walks over to Blackburn as the ambulance drives off. How old do you figure that kid is, Ed? Blackburn says, oh, five or six. Tough break for her. <laughs> that's the kind of shit, man. Back then, it's like, it's like, tough break. <laughs> that's, that's tough all break. You got. Your family's murdered. Tough break. Yeah. And I, I don't remember. I don't remember if I tracked it, but, but. Uh, no, I think I will. I did track it because they do mention later that that the mom, the the dad, and the mom are missing, but also like a sibling. Like it was two kids, and I'm like, that's yeah. pretty dark when you put together what happened later. You know what I mean? Yeah, and what happens at the end? Potentially at first, you're like, oh shit, this is really dark. Yeah, dude, it it goes into some places, but it it goes there, but it never quite goes there. So, yeah, tough break for her. Uh, ben agrees. <laughs> ben agrees it was a tough break and uh, figures that they should have. Not a good up. run. Not a good run. <laughs> not, not a good run for her family, no. Nope. nope. Uh, uh, so he says they should head over to Gramp Johnson's store to see if he knows anything. Ah, the old local Gramps, you know. Let's get some feed for our horses and six-pack of beer and... Oh, he's dead. Oh, my God. Take everything while you can. <laughs> exactly. Sergeant Ben Peterson and Trooper Ed Blackburn pull up at Grant Johnson's store. It's night now, and the sandstorm is really kicking up. Peterson and Blackburn walk into the general store, but find it ransacked, just like the trailer. Complete with a giant hole in the side of the building as well. Ben calls out for Gramps, but gets no reply. He walks into the back office only to find the kettle still on the stove. Ben keeps looking around and eventually finds a rifle bent and broken on the floor behind the register. They walk a little further and find a cellar door on the ground half open. When Ben throws back the door, they see Gramps' body laying dead in the laying dead on the dirt floor. And might I note, you can see him breathing. I was completely immersed in the film and was not looking at those flaws. <laughs> How dare you? By I today's s- standards, they would probably show him with his neck broken, body twisted. Yeah. Yeah. S- especially when you take into account when they tell you all the things that are wrong with his body down there. Yeah. Yeah, true. They, they, <laughs> he looked pretty tame compared to what actually happened to him. Yeah, you're right. You're not wrong there. Uh, Blackburn says, looks like he was dragged and thrown down there. They walk over and examine the giant hole in the wall, and Ben says it's just like the trailer. This wasn't pushed in, it was pulled out. They look down and see a broken barrel of sugar on the ground, and ants are crawling all over it. I don't know why, but Ben sticks his hand into it, and ants are like all over his hand, and I'm like, why would you touch that? Well, you got to get it on your pores to make sure. I'm surprised he didn't lick it. Oh, God. This isn't cocaine. God damn it. <laughs> God damn. God damn it. Cocaine ants. That's the next. That's the sequel to Cocaine Bear. (laughs) See, the thing just writes itself. (laughs) Guys and gals, you can have it. It's free to you all. Make cocaine ants. You're welcome, Elizabeth Banks. (laughs) Ben quickly walks over to the register only to find all the cash still in it. This was no robbery either. He tells Blackburn that he's going to put in a call for the guys at the trailer to stop by. He wants to get back to headquarters to be there when the little girl starts talking. Blackburn says he'll watch over the crime scene until they get there. Ben tells Blackburn to stay loose, then drives off into the night. Right when he leaves, the shrill chirping sound starts. 
Blackburn draws his pistol and walks through the hole in the wall and into the sandstorm. We hear six shots being fired, then Ed Blackburn scream. Blackburn's dead and that's the movie. <laughs> Got his head ripped off. Blackburn's dead. This is one of those movies where every time I watch it, I forget that Blackburn is going to die. He dies. And I, every time I watch it, I don't want him to die because I like Blackburn. Yeah. Yeah. He, he, he let out the, the, he let out the pot, the piped in. <laughs> okay. So I started noting about the end. So I didn't like actually write down a number, uh, guys and gals. Um, but if you watch this movie, two things, you can have a drinking game for two things. One, how many times they save them and sort of like emphasize it. You know what I mean? Uh, yeah. And two, how many times the Wilhelm scream is used in this movie? Because it's not one. It's not two. They use it twice, like in the finale. Like yeah. the Wilhelm scream is used like four times in this movie. <laughs> Bodie's like, they all scream the same way. I'm like, uh, the, the same thing. You're like, you're like, it's it's a giant meta cinematic inside joke. Yeah, you know. Don't ruin the ma- don't ruin the magic. Don't ruin the magic. Oh! Apparently, uh, there's been inside um, rumblings that for the past ten years, and I don't, I can't remember ever hearing it, but uh, the Wilhelm scream has officially been retired, and there is a quote unquote new one out there, but I don't know what it is. But that being said, I don't think I've heard the Wilhelm scream in a quite a while in a new movie. Yeah, the nostalgia factor was fun for this one. Yeah. Yes, even though it was four times. Yes. Back at the police station, Captain Edwards is looking over the evidence and talking to Sergeant Peterson and the doctor. And with all this stuff, we only know the car and the trailer was owned by a guy named Alan Ellenson from Chicago. Peterson looks distraught and says, yeah, that's all. Captain goes on, look, Ben, (laughs) stop blaming yourself for whatever happened to Ed Blackburn. It wasn't your fault. Somebody had to stay at the Johnson's place, so it happened to be him. Yeah, Shane. Yeah. <laughs> we'll find out who killed him, if he is dead, along with Gramps and the Ellison family. So come off it. <laughs> Guys and gals, there is no such thing in the 50s as PTSD. There's no such thing as, like, emotional trauma. Uh, in World War II, they called PTSD just shell shock. And what was it? Eisenhower famously, like, just smacks the people, the, the soldier in the head. Like, Get back out there, you know? Like, there was no thought. I mean, Ben lost his partner, and it was not his fault. Like, I know Ben understands that, like, someone had to stay. But I love how the captain's like... Just get over it, see? Don't be a wimp, see? Yeah, come on. We have both put our boots on one foot at a time. Yeah. Except when I put my boots on, blood comes out of my ears. <laughs> and my nose. Do I complain? You see the blood coming out of my mouth right now? There's nothing wrong with me, kid. Sir, you may have cancer. <laughs> <laughs> I'm fine. I'm fine. But- you see the blood coming out of my eyeballs? Do you see me crying about it? Uh, sir, you're... <laughs> Are you okay? <laughs> and it's not like he's like an asshole character or anything. No, it's no, just, no, no. It's just the way it was back then. It's like, no, it's how men, it was. men, you're just, you cannot have emotions. That's just crazy, you know? Ladies have feelings, men don't. That's honestly, yeah, isolate that, guys and gals. Isolate Zach's statement right there. <laughs> the following statements do not apply to podcasting after dark. <laughs> Do not reflect the opinions of Corey or Zach for Podcast After Dark. Ladies are wimps. Men are tough. 
This is brought to you by Podcasting After Dark. <laughs> Jesus Christ. We're canceled, guys and gals. We'll see you. We'll catch you later. Oh, my God. Did you hear what they said? Those are those fucking assholes. Those pieces of shit. Uh, the captain says they'll get a report on the fingerprints later this morning. He picks up the strange mold made from the print in the sand and asks the doctor if he knows what it is. The doc says no. The captain tells another officer to run down all Gramps' personal stuff and records. I don't think he had an enemy in the world, but somebody might have... Uh, it doesn't make any sense. If somebody wanted to knock off Gramps, why tear half the building to do it? Ben says he put in a call to check all the mental institutions in the area, back when we still had mental institutions until the 80s. Yeah. Everything seems to indicate a homicidal maniac. There's no money stolen, violent wreckage, just sugar taken. The captain says it's being checked, but it's a waste of time, too. They would have been notified if there had been a if there was a loony killer on the loose. On top of that, Gramps got off four shots with his 30-30 before he before the killer did that to his gun. He holds it up and it's practically broken in half. And Blackburn was a crack shot. He could hit anything you could see. So unless your maniac was armored like a battleship, there's no maniac in this case. And that's cool. I like that's a little bit of a you know a foreshadowing uh, armored like a battleship because they are armored pretty well, you know. Yeah, we'll find out what happens to that. Yeah, that but the battleship later. Yeah, yeah. Ben agrees with them. The captain goes on. I want every available man scouting the desert. If our two planes aren't enough to cover this area, the cars can't reach. I'll ask permission for the from the chief to hire a couple more. Ben, get yourself something to eat and grab some sleep. I don't want you wearing yourself out. So when something happens, you'll fold up on us. Now that I think, I mean, he could say it nicer, but I think like. Dude, go rest. Take care of yourself. There's nothing we can do now because when shit hits the fan, I need you. I need you ready, you know, but he doesn't say it as nice as that. No. Ben says he has a score to settle. The captain reminds him they all do. Just then, someone comes in with a report on, on the fingerprints from the trailer. Mr. Ellenson was an FBI agent on an extended vacation with his wife and two children. That always, again, that's another thing I forget. I'm like, oh, my God, there was another kid, and that that kid gone. <laughs> yeah. That kid eaten. That kid got got. That kid got got. He hands the paper to Ben. Call the local FBI office. They've got a stake in this case now. Tell them Mr. Ellenson's vacation looks like it's been extended indefinitely. Jesus. There are quite a few scenes that sort of end with that, you know, that punch at the end, you know. Hey, everybody. Corey here. I just wanted to let you know that we'll be right back after these short messages. Imagine being one of the last people on Earth, being trapped alone with something not human, something always watching, something always waiting. What would you do? Where would you run? Where would you hide if you were haunted? For seven winters alone. Podcasting After Dark presents Seven Winters Alone, a dystopian haunted house story by David Irons. Available now in paperback and ebook. Hey, everybody, I'm Tim. And I'm Dean. And we're the hosts of Talking Back. We're a retro-based podcast covering movies, comics, video games, and more. Check us out every Monday where we hit the rewind button and dig into some of our favorite content from the past. 
We like to keep things fun, lighthearted, and informative. Do you feel like you need more nostalgia in your life? Then check out Talking Back. We're available everywhere podcasts are found. And now, back to the show. Cut to Sergeant Ben Peterson walking FBI agent Robert Graham, played by James Arness, into the police station and over to the captain's office. Uh, by the way, real, real quick, guys, I will say that um, his name's Robert Graham. The The doctor calls him Robert, but most everybody calls him Bob. And I will eventually just shorten it down to Bob and Ben pretty much everywhere. Yeah, Bob and Ben. And I was thinking of it's Billy Graham. Billy Graham was the name of the uh, the preacher. That's right. That's right. Believe in God, because God will make the choices that you need to do in life. Give us their money. Send your giant ants to pray for Jesus Christ. Wasn't that like the 700 Club or something back in yeah. the day? Put your hand on the TV and tell Jesus Christ you don't want ants in your pants anymore. You want them coming out of the trailers. <laughs> Giant ants, by God, Jesus Christ does not want those ants here. Send your money to my fucking factory of hate and bigotry. Man, do you do you ever watch the Royal Gemstones, dude? <laughs> no, I have watched it before. It's really funny. It, it is, but it's also very, you know, they're making clearly making fun of that kind of stuff and oh, everything. God. But yeah, dude. I, I'm sorry, guys. It, I don't mean to offend anybody, but I hate organized religion. I, I, th- I think anyone who's listened to our podcast at this point knows <laughs> know our that. stance on religion. <laughs> Pray to something not real. Like giant ants. Ooh. I remember I would only see that shit if I, like, stayed home sick or something from school during the day. Yeah, and that it, or Price is Right. Yeah, and I would much rather have watched Price is Right because when I'm I saw like, that on. stuff, even when I was give a kid, I was, like, I was like, Jesus Christ, you know? <laughs> Jesus Christ. Yeah, give me the showcase where they're going to an exotic island and you might see the models with the That's Yeah, dude. I know what's up. I know what's up, baby. My friend was like, oh, my friend is dating a model. Model on the prices right and like diane parkinson <laughs> diane park was that her name parkinson <laughs> yeah i think so <laughs> diane parkinson's <laughs> she's the one that posts for playboy uh, oh yeah and then he fucking booted her bob bob yeah. what's his nuts fucking booted you, her. you you that's not that goes against my wholesome show yeah yeah ah oh, fucking uh. hey stay sp- new to your men s- spoiler alert Every celebrity is a scumbag anyway, so it doesn't matter. Yes, yes. <laughs> Including Billy Graham. Let's get back to ants. Let's get Damn. back to giant ants. God, uh, my God, those giant ants. <laughs> he shows uh, Robert Graham into, shows Bob into the, the <laughs> oh, captain's <laughs> Billy Graham's going to be throughout this whole episode now. <laughs> You're like, I found my voice now. <laughs> I did. I have to have a character when I'm not breaking it down. I know. You're having fun, baby. You're having by fun. God, those giant ants. Who set them? Lucifer? <gasps> Actually, honestly, seven. <laughs> you know, you might not be wrong in that regard. No. Uh, Satan sent the sand ants. So they're in the captain's <laughs> office. They <laughs> have a lot of a lot of dialogue here, guys. Oh, he introduces the two men, and they exchange pleasantries. The captain asks Bob if Ben caught up with them, <laughs> what was caught him up on what was happening. Yeah, I'm totally thrown off right now. <laughs> I love it though, buddy. I love it. I Robert says, 
<laughs> Robert sits down at the desk and looks over the evidence. Yes, sir, he has. We went over these exhibits this morning before we left for the desert. Bim picks up where he left off. I took him out to where we found the trailer in the Johnson store. We've been there all day. Nothing. The captain asks Mr. Graham if he has any ideas. Satan. God, it was Lucifer. He sent his disciples from the depths of hell. Now, now kindly send that money to me. I'm, yeah, what I need is you to empty your checking account and give me all your money, because God is wreaking havoc. I need another private plane. Five. Five private planes isn't enough. We need six guys and gals. Yes. Yes, the giant. I need a plane that looks like a giant ant. Yeah. Yeah, there it is. There it is. There you go. We got there. Uh, the captain asks uh, if he has any ideas. Uh, Graham says, uh, Bob says, none that makes any sense. The captain retorts, I thought you FBI guys were all quiz kids. Solved, solved everything right away. Bob chuckles and says, I did too when I applied for the job. Ben says that the planes and the cars haven't found anything yet. The captain says to give them time. People don't just drop off the face of this earth without leaving a trace. The FBI agents look at the strange the FBI agent looks at the strange print and the captain asks if you know what it knows what it is. Bob says it beats me. Uh, has it been identified yet? The captain says no. One of the why would you ask if what it was if it's been identified? One of the officers even took it to a friend of his who teaches zoology at the college. He said he'd never seen anything like it. Lots of evidence. Lots of evidence loaded with clues, but nothing adds up. Ben says that the little Ellenson girl is. Ben says the little Ellenson girl is their only real bet. He asks if there's any news on her. The captain says no. He just checked with the hospital about a half hour ago. Bob says he'd like to send the print to their office in Washington. They just might be able to identify it. The captain agrees. Then there's a knock at the door. A doctor walks in, and the captain introduces him to Agent Robert Graham. They exchange pleasantries as well. The doctor says he's finished the autopsy on Gramps Johnson. Well, old man Johnson could have died in any one of five ways. His neck and his back were broken. His chest was crushed. His skull was fractured. And here's one for Sherlock Holmes. There was enough, there was enough formic acid in him to kill 20 men. So like, like we said earlier... The actor was just laying there on the ground, but his body should have been just mangled and destroyed. I don't want to wear those special effects. Just let me lay there. It'll be more effective. Okay. Okay. Just, just make sure you don't breathe. Yeah, you got it. No, I won't. Ah, no breathing. I'm a pro <gasps> professional. <laughs> Stop breathing. I'm not breathing. I'm not yeah, I can see your belly. It's not moving. Yeah, it, it, it's, it's, you call, you call me a liar? No, yes. <laughs> Let me stare, stare directly at the camera, not blinking, but yet my chest will keep moving up and down. Yeah. What, what do you expect me to chew bubble gum and walk at the same time? <laughs> no, because you're supposed to be dead. My God. My God. <laughs> Send money so this man can stop breathing. Jesus needs your money. I remember Kenneth Copeland. He was the one that I remember the most as a kid. Not that I liked him or anything, but I just remembered him. Uh, and I've seen pictures of him now, and he literally looks like the devil now. Yeah, I'm sure he does, because he is. They all are. Yep, his, his face now matches his soul. We cut to Ben <laughs> reading a telegram. 
Doc, I know I'm going to read it exactly how it is in Guys and Gals telegrams back in the day. You kind of had to get succinct and succinct and right to the point, so they drop things like the and stuff like that. So, Doctors Medford of Department Agriculture, arriving Army aircraft, approximate 1500 hours, your time, meet and extend all cooperation. He and Robert are waiting at the airport. Ben says to the FBI agent that he doesn't understand why they're sending two doctors from the Department of Agriculture. Does this mean someone's identified the print? Robert says he doesn't know. Bob says he doesn't know. An Army personnel walks over and tells them the plane has landed. They walk over to see an old man disembarking through the hatch at the bottom of the plane. It's the elder Dr. Harold Medford, played by Edmund Gwynn. Robert and Ben walk over and greet him. I'm Bob Graham, and this is Sergeant Ben Peterson. The doctor shakes their hands and then calls out for Pat. Everyone looks over and sees a woman trying, trying to disembark the plane from the same hatch. But of course, her skirt is caught. A grounds crew uh, offers to help her, but she says she can manage. As she struggles, we see Bob and Ben leering at her. Finally, Dr. Patricia Medford, played by Joan Weldon, makes her way over to the men and greets them. Agent Graham tells them they have a car waiting to take them to the hotel, but her father says they have work to do. The hotel can wait. As the two doctors walk towards the car, Bob and Ben trail behind. Bob says, I should have had this suit pressed. Ben remarks that she's quite a doctor. Bob says, yeah, if she's the kind that takes care of sick people, I think I'll get a fever real quick. Ben chuckles as the scene fades out. Now, it's sexist. Yes, I, I get it. But I do like the rapport. It's a time thing. It's a, it's a time thing. But I do like the rapport that Bob and Ben have together. Yeah. I also like the fact that this is uh, actual location and they're using real planes and it looks so cool. Like the I've, I miss, you know, so often the older movies are, are sets that they're on and it looks like a set. This is not. This is at some Air Force base wherever they shot it. It's so cool looking. It just looks totes profesh that should be noted dude because there is a quality to this film even though we mentioned that warner brothers sort of cut the budget um maybe it was just the budget for the color film versus but they had the rest of their budget I, you know i don't know how much of the budget was cut but yeah. you are right it is awesome to see locations and it's not just the fact that they are locations and they look better but now that we are jesus christ uh 70 years removed it's also just cool to see what old planes looked like back then and just yeah. those, you know, just see shit like that, you know? Yeah, it's very, very cool. Very cool. Yeah. Uh, if she's a doctor, then somebody call call her because I got chlamydia. <laughs> what? Well, I mean, wait, I mean, I didn't say, did I say that? Yes, you did. <laughs> you son of a bitch. <laughs> Someone call a doctor then. I've got gonorrhea. No, that's... No, that doesn't work either. Uh, the clap? No. AIDS? Yes. <laughs> you know, it's funny. Watching these movies, sort of knowing how things work, the fact that we have two good-looking male leads, but one of them likes the girl, and she kind of is going to like him back, that means the one that doesn't have a love interest is probably expendable. Yeah. It's just sometimes there was a formula to these things back in the day. <laughs> Yeah, Ben Ben looks like uh 
he had a tremendous amount of. I think he, they were supposed. He was supposed to look tan in the beginning from the sun. From the I'm sun assuming. and everything. But he looks like someone just caked him with a bunch of self tanner, and he looks very bronzy through that black and white lens. Yeah. But yeah. then, yeah. And, and he also, also he's got that Cro Magnon kind of look too, like the 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 eyebrow flap thing got, going got on. a bit of a shadow when there's like hard light and everything coming down um, yeah it, it makes him it almost makes him look like he has a, a unibrow but he doesn't it's just like the shadow um plus he he looks a little older than bob like if you just put the two guys next to each other and just said hey uh, in the movie which one's supposed to be the love interest or the heartthrob or whatever i'd be like uh, it's bob you know it's not yeah. i don't think it's gonna be ben you know the guy with the cassava melon for a nose. Yeah, he did. He did have that kind of bulbous nose. My um, my dad's dad had that as well, but it was really big and bulbous because he was an alcoholic. And uh, usually, like guys and gals, if you see somebody that has that big bulbous nose at the end, they're a, they're a hard drinker. That's like a, a fucking. Uh, uh, that's I think that's like hard alcohol drinking too. You know. Oh boy. My God, call call the number at the bottom of the TV if you want that man's cassava melon nose to reduce in size. It's Satan that's poisoning poisoning into ants crawling up inside his nose. I love it. I love it. Fade into a room at the police station. Uh, Bob is uh, showing the two doctors the location of the trailer and Gramps' store on the map. Uh, ben is sitting at the desk in the back of the room. Bob asks why the office in Washington sent the print to the Department of Agriculture. Dr. Patricia Medford says because they weren't able to identify it. Bob asks if they if they identified it, but he's ignored while Patricia talks to her father, Dr. Harold Medford. The older doctor turns to Bob and asks where the first atomic bomb was exploded back in 1945. Bob points to the map he was using and says... Right he, right in this general area and circles where the two attacks happened. White Sands. Older Dr. Medford starts mulling over the fact that it was nine years ago that the bomb was tested. He says to his daughter, genetically, it certainly is possible. Bob gets frustrated and walks over. Now look, we're grown up. There's no need to play footsie with us. As a matter of fact, we resent it. Now if you people know what this thing is, doctor, I suggest you tell us. We were assigned to this case, too, you know. I've got no time. No time for this. Well, if you... Please allow me to explain. You just shot my father. Yeah, you didn't get to the point. I was about to. I'm old. Yeah, Bob sometimes comes off as having a short temper here. And there. Come on. Come on. Short temper for a short man. <laughs> The old man looks at him and says, Mr. Graham, we cannot tell you until we are absolutely certain of our theory. I'd like to first stop off at the drugstore, then go see the little girl, then go see the little Ellenson girl. Ben Peterson reminds the doctor that she's still in shock and isn't talking. The doctor goes on. And after the girl, I want to examine the territory where you found the print. They grab their coats and hats and leave. Cut to Dr. Harold Medford examining the little girl. She's sitting in a chair and looking blankly ahead. The physician tells Dr. Medford that she's a classic case of hysteria conversion. Only a severe catharsis could jolt her at all. Dr. Medford interrupts her and asks for a small glass. As the doctor gets the glass, Medford asks his daughter, Pat, for the acid that they got at the drugstore. The physician asks, acid? 
Medford says, for McDoctor, it may provide the jolt we need. He has Pat pour the acid into the cup, then he holds it under the girl's nose. After a few whiffs, she comes to and starts screaming at the top of her lungs, Them! Them! Ben picks her up to calm her down. Dr. Medford asks, May we visit the desert now, gentlemen? Bob says, It's getting pretty late, doctor. The old man shoots back, Later than you think. And then it sort of fades to scene. But uh, the, 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 the little girl screaming them, that's from the trailer. That's kind of like from everything that people show about this movie and whatnot. She's great, though. Creepy scene. Yeah. Like, she's got a great scream. Yep, she sure does. And in, on her IMDb, she still uses the picture of, like, you know, this and from this movie. So Perfect classic example of someone online not using the age-appropriate photo. Right. <laughs> like a dating site. <laughs> Cut to Honestly, a... officer, I thought she was 12. Th- that's not helping you. <laughs> oh. That's not helping you, Billy Graham. <laughs> Jesus Christ, I made a mistake. So please send your goddamn money to me. Get me out of jail now. <laughs> I need help from these giant ants that are in my pants. <laughs> I knew you were going to say in my pants. I knew it. I knew it like like I was reading your mind. I could see it coming out of your mouth. Yeah, you just know me too well. <laughs> I do. I do. Cut to a squad car driving through the desert. There's a sandstorm kicking up dust. Ben, Bob, Pat, and Harold. Again, I'm going to just start referring to Dr. Patricia Medford as Pat. And her father, you know, I, don't, I was like, I can't call him Dr. Medford because she's also a doctor. So I just call him Harold as well. So Ben, Bob, Pat, and Harold get out of the car and put on goggles to protect their eyes. Ben has a cute little scene where he kind of helps the doctor do it. And I almost felt like I liked it, but I almost felt like it was probably like improv a little, you know? Yeah. It's a funny scene though, because he's having uh, the doctor's having a hard time that has like no clue how to put his glasses on. And yeah. And like Ben literally is putting them on his face and everything. Yeah. Um, Ben shows the two doctors where the trailer was and where the print was found by the campfire. The doctor asks, if there have been any reports of a strange mound, a cone-shaped structure, something recently formed. Ben says no. The doctor asks if they can look around the area a little bit more, and Ben agrees. Patricia says, rather slim pickings for food, Dad. They'd turn carnivorous. This is the exact line. They'd turn carnivorous what for a lack of habitual diet. He says that he believes she's right. Bob asks Pat, what would turn carnivorous? She says, my father will tell you when he's positive. Bob grabs her by the arm and says, now look, miss, doctor. She says, if the doctor bothers you, why don't you call me Pat? Bob says, I'd like to. But look, Pat, (laughs) I've got a job to do. And I've got enough mysteries on my hands already without that old, I mean, your father complicating things. Pat? always maintaining her cool in the, in, the, in, the, in the face of misogyny. Pat says, the old man, as you started to call him, is one of the world's greatest myromacologists. Bob grumbles. <laughs> myromacologist. <laughs> God damn it. I tried to get past it. Myromacologist. Mim- 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 I'm sorry, guys. Close enough. It's Dr. Lev. <laughs> 
Come again? Come again. It's Dr. Rosen. Rosen penis. <laughs> what? Dr. Rosen. <laughs> it's Dr. Rosen. Rosen. Where the hell's the records room? Where the hell's the records room? <laughs> Bob Grumbles. Mimicologist. Mimicologist. You see, that's what I mean. Why don't we all talk English? Then we'd yeah. all have some basis for an understanding. Ah, typical white man response. Just then, Harold yells for his daughter, Pat, to come over there. He found another print in the sand. He measures it with a ruler and says, It's gigantic. It's over 12 centimeters. Pat says, That would make the entire thing, her dad finishes, about two and a half meters in length, over eight feet. Pat goes off looking for more prints at her father's behest. Harold, and by the way, I think they do an okay job at the time of giving Pat some agency, but she's yeah. still 90% no agency. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like yeah. she never gets to they like try. She never gets to like say the things. Like her dad always interrupts and like, oh, what she means is this. And I'm like, it's it's literally typical mansplaining, right? Yep. But it's of the time. So it gets a pass. Gets a pass, but it doesn't make it right. <laughs> Just <laughs> uh, guys and gals, we have a lot of female listeners, so I just want to make sure that we all know what where we all stand here. You know, well, we all know this is horrible, it's, but but this is 1954, so it's okay. Think about all, well, no, just think about all the horrible things that are going on in 1954. I wish we could go back to a time when we could go to a you know, go to a soda fountain shop and sit down and have a milkshake and let's do a jukebox. Yeah, you mean only the white men? Yep. Yeah, but, I mean, what's the harm in that? That's back when men were men, though. Yeah. I mean, you, you, I, I didn't mean that. I, why can't we go back to time and listen to Elvis and, you know, lynching people? No, 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 no. Because that, that's part of the 50s, too. Yep. Oh, but let's go to the sixties. Still going on. Still, still not a good time. For, let's go for... to the seventies. Uh, still going on, but we also have the Vietnam War. Okay, fine. Let's go to the eighties. Uh, a lot of fucked up things happen there too. Just where, where can we go? Present, Fu- present, future. just be in the present. Future. Yeah, future. How about we go in the future and everybody is all cool? How about that? Okay, let's go twenty years in the future. Okay, let's fast forward. Where is everybody? Uh, you don't want to go that far in the future. <laughs> Even I was on the edge of my seat. I was like, oh, well, what's in the future? What's 20 years in the future? <laughs> Boom. <laughs> JK, LOL. If you give us money, we'll make sure that that doesn't happen. Or if it does, you'll go to heaven. Yeah. Actually, if you sign up for our Patreon, you'll we'll do our to- best to make sure that that doesn't happen. <laughs> And if you sign up to our Patreon, you will go to heaven. Probably <laughs> hell. <laughs> I mean, heaven's, heaven's a place on earth. Uh, there you go. Harold- and as Pat Benatar said, hell is for children. <laughs> oh, Pat Benatar. Good job. <laughs> Good job, men. <laughs> Good luck, men. <laughs> Carol Kravitz. Uh Harold Carol looks Kravitz. around and says, the direction the print would indicate it came from that way. And he points into the desert. He says to Ben and Bob that they should visit the store. There may be more there now. Bob stops him and says, Now look here, Dr. Medford. Before we do any more visiting any place, I want to know exactly what this it is. 
Harold says that he understands their impatience. He knows they're concerned with solving what they believe is a local crime, but he assures them he's not being coy. If I'm wrong in my assumptions, then no harm has been done. Uh, except wasting valuable time, you know, because as we all know, you know, when, whenever there's a murder, it's like the first 24 hours, like you need to like, you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. And this is also about 30 minutes into the movie, I think, at this point. So I'm like, come on now. Yeah, I think you can reveal what it is. Yeah. Yeah. It, the what then are. Kind of, <laughs> the movie has it's almost like two broke. It's like two halves. First half is like it'll end sort of when when they sort of take on this nest and then there's yeah. like the second half you know like the movie gets bigger um but if i am correct and the mounting evidence only fortifies my theory then something incredible has happened in the desert in which case none of us will dare risk revealing it because none of us risk a nationwide panic and that's going to be a through line through the whole movie is keeping this a secret let's keep it a secret well that's what the government did with covid <laughs> Why are you putting your fingers on my lips? Because you're a baby. Because you're a little baby man who believes in fucking conspiracy theories. Shut the fuck up. Man, I remember when conspiracy theories were fun. They're not fun. Yeah, you remember that Mel Gibson movie, Conspiracy Theory? Yes, I do. I do remember that. Yes. Where he was cuckoo, and now he really is cuckoo. (laughs) That might have been more accurate than we ever, ever know. We see Pat walking through the sand looking for prints. She leans down beside a dune to inspect inspect a print then hears the shrill chirping sound bob ben and harold hear it over the wind as well pat looks around but can't pinpoint the location suddenly a giant ant head rises up behind the dune next to her and she screams awesome it's such an awesome reveal what did uh Bodhi think like at this moment this moment right here when you actually see the ant he said it he's like oh cool like that was his that's what came out of his mouth Dude, just and you know, and it, it, okay, it's fine, it'll be fine. But you know that the ants will be CGI in the remake. But even as cheesy as they look, there's something amazing about practical effects like that. And even Bodhi in 2023, yep. as an eight-year-old, can see that. You know, when the sound of the ants comes on, he actually would like covered his eyes because he was kind of scared. I mean, it is a horror movie. It's it's you know, it's supposed to be scary. And I said, "What's wrong with you? Don't be a wimp. <laughs> Don't be a wimp." Don't, I don't want you folding up on me now, huh? You gonna pee your pants, huh? And then I peed my pants. <laughs> and then I was the one that peed my pants. <laughs> <laughs> and I cried. <laughs> Pat quickly gets to her feet and runs away. The three men hear the screams and run to her aid. Ben starts shooting at the giant ant while Bob runs to Pat and puts himself between her and the creature. He starts shooting it with his pistol, but the bullets seem to bounce off its hard shell. Dr. Harold Medford yells to Ben and Bob to shoot the antennae. Shoot the antennae! Shoot the antennae! <laughs> the antennae. That's so funny. <laughs> I know. He's helpless without them. Bob shoots one antennae with his gun, then runs back to the, guard, the car to get his machine gun. Bob shoots the other one with his pistol. As the giant ant flails about, Ben unloads his Tommy gun into the beast and drops it. Side note, the Thompson submachine gun without the the round barrel, but the the straight one, is one of my favorite real guns of all time. And it was the body chassis that they built the Colonial Marines uh, pulse rifle around. Oh, cool. So, like, the 
the handle of a, of a, of a pulse rifle. And then like that part on the top and everything. And yeah. whatnot, that's all a Tommy gun. And then they fabricated everything around it and then attached like a shock, you know, cut a piece and put the shotgun underneath for the, for the pump and everything. But that's that cool. is essentially a Tommy Thompson submachine gun. Zach's like, I said cool twice. I'm not going to say it a third time. <laughs> <laughs> you already you already heard me say cool. I'm not going to say it again. <laughs> it's God's gun. <laughs> it is. Uh, the four of them slowly walk over to the ant to inspect the dead creature. Bob asks what it is, and Harold says, species appears to be... Uh, Compontus vixen Jesus. Camponitus vicinus. Vicinus. Camponitus vicinus. There you go. There you go. I'm keeping them all in. (laughs) By the way, it's an ant. Not (laughs) bad. Not bad. I could have just said that. Bob says it's not possible. Ben asks, then this is what got Ed Blackburn and Gramps Johnson and the rest. Harold says, yes, a fantastic mutation, probably caused by lingering radiation from the first atomic bomb. Dr. Medford asks, notice notice its odor, formic acid. Bob says that's why the little girl reacted so violently. Ben chimes in and says, and that's why the coroner's, and that's why the coroner's report says Gramps was riddled with this stuff. Harold points out the ant's stinger to the group. Ants use their mandibles to rend, tear, and hold their victims, but they kill with that, injecting formic acid. Mr. Johnson was stung to death. Dr. Medford goes on, There's no time to lose. We must find the colony, the nest. This was probably just a scout foraging for food. You heard the sound. It communicated with others in the colony. Bob asks in shock, Communicate? You mean these things send messages? Harold says, all insects have means of communication with their own kind. Just then, the shrill chirping picks up over the wind. Everyone looks around, but the sound fades away, and Harold says, we may be witness to a biblical prophecy come true, and there shall be destruction and darkness come upon creation, and the beasts shall reign over the earth. The scene fades to black. I told you it was an act of deviance. And, and 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 Satan and Lucifer. What you all are not seeing is the fact that every time Zach does this voice, he closes his eyes shut, <laughs> and it's like a whole it's like a whole persona. It's not just coming yeah. out of his mouth; it's Channeling like a whole it. persona. <laughs> By God, man, you've got to call this number at the bottom of your TV. It's. The world needs saving, and you are the savior. If you use your credit card, write a check for giant ants. My God. My God. Formiaic acid, metatarsalis, carpal tunnel syndrome. What the (laughs) fuck Corey just said? (laughs) You're lucky I didn't send the script to you to have to read that shit. (laughs) I am lucky. Real quick, I will say I do like that. What I find is one of the freakier parts of the movie is when they hear that the the shrieking at just then, but they don't see the ants. But now they know what's attached to that sound, and thus we know what's attached to the sound. I love that the sandstorm you can't you don't know what's out there, and they could just be so close by. I, I just I think that little scene is freaky at the end of the air. Like, yeah, I actually that. like this first half more than the second half in some respects. 
I completely agree with you because this first half, it's like everything that I love about a Roland Emmerich movie. I always love the first 30 minutes of the Roland Emmerich movie because he does such a great job of setting up these huge buildups. You know what I mean? And I, I get shades of that here. Um, which I wouldn't be surprised if he wasn't a fan of like movies like this. But yeah. I'm with you as much. I love this movie as a whole, but my favorite part of the movie is technically the first half. Yeah, me too. Cut to two choppers flying over the desert. One has Ben and Harold in the back, and the other has Bob and Pat. The pilot of the first helicopter with Ben and Harold also happens to be a general. He asks, uh, he asks, Doctor, this nest we're looking for, how many giant ants do you think will be in it? Harold responds, well, General, I don't really know. If they follow the usual pattern of their species, the nest, depending on its age, may contain from several hundreds to several thousands. Ben looks at him in shock. The General says that if they run into several thousands of them, it'll take a bomber squadron plus the the infantry regiment to mop up after them. How do you propose to keep that a secret? Harold reassures them that there might not be that many. The General asks how come they haven't seen them until now. Harold says that he doesn't believe they developed until recently. Then he sees what he thinks is an ant mound, but it's just a rock formation. He asks for the radio so he can speak with his daughter on the helicopter. The general hands him the headset and Ben shows him how to use it. I didn't track every bit of dialogue, but we get a funny scene of Harold uh, using the call signs incorrectly as, as he talks to Pat over the headset and Ben kind of like has to help him out with it. You know what? I'll say just watch the movie. It, there, it's, funny i like the dialogue it's funny here. yeah it's a funny scene when he's when he's like say over and out he's like but why he's like because that's what you do but it, i'm done talking or something like it, that. he's like she knows i'm done talking no but you still need to say it but why yeah i always like that scene that little exchange you know yeah it's cute it's funny and he doesn't know how to wear it and all that yeah <laughs> yeah puts it on his penis <laughs> he, is this where you put it he, he farts into it. He he turns into he turns into Ace Ventura and just starts talking to his daughter through his ass. Let me ask you a question. <laughs> I love Ace Ventura. Then Reggie Jackson pops up and has a gun in his hand from a second base. No. He asks if they've spotted anything yet, but she says no. Once they're done, Bob asks Pat if she's worried about her father. She says a little. She doesn't think he should have made the trip due to his age, but this is a scientist's dream come true. Just then, she spots the giant ant mound. The helicopter circles it, and we see an ant crawl out of the hole, holding a human ribcage in its mandibles. It drops it, and the camera follows the ribcage as it rolls down to a pile of more human bones. We see a police belt, so we know one of them is Blackburn. Pat says to Bob, we just found your missing persons. Shit just got real. Yeah, and honestly, I mean, again, this is a horror movie, but, you know, I mean, full skeletons and stuff. I mean, you know what they're doing. That's got to be a little bit scary to Bodie. I think so. Yeah, yeah. He was like, whoa. I said, that's pretty gross. He's like, yeah, that's pretty gross. It, he agreed. That's awesome. I love Bodie. I love that Bodie watched. I, I love Bodie, but I also love that he watched it. That's so yeah, cool, he's dude. He's the best. He's the best. <laughs> you, you're definitely doing it right, my friend. I try. try. <laughs> Showing him then, them at eight years old. I love right. it. 
cut to Dr. Harold Medford talking to Bob, Ben, Major Kibby, and the general from the helicopter. I only ever call him the general, but he's General O'Brien. Yeah. Um, the general says that the doctor is being inconsistent. First, he insists that secrecy is essential. Then he says that time is the most important thing. I've been instructed to take orders from you, but if time is that important, why don't you let me go? Why don't you let me go in there tonight with some bombers and wipe out the nest? Harold says that bombing the nest tonight will only aggravate the problem. Pat hangs up a poster-sized cross-section of an ant hill, showing what it looks like inside and underground. Dr. Medford goes on. The reason none of them have been seen during the day is because they don't like the heat of the desert. They forage only between sunset and dawn, when it's cool. Half the colony won't even be inside the nest tonight. Our best chance will be during the hottest part of the day tomorrow. Harold walks over to the map of the ant hill and points out the corridors and food chambers. The nest even has water traps to keep the colony from drowning. He speculates the nest could be hundreds of feet deep. The general says that they can blast the entrance shut, but Dr. Medford says they would just dig out from somewhere else. Plus, they don't want the nest damaged, not yet at least. If they go out at noon, all of them should be in the nest. Their best chance is to generate enough heat by the entrance to keep the ants in the nest. The major suggests they use bazookas to shoot phosphorus rounds all around the entrance. Harold says that should work. Then they can drop cyanide gas into the opening and kill them. Then they go into the nest and make sure they got them all. So that's the game plan, but that is not the giant exposition dump. The gi- There will be a bigger exposition dump come later. Oh, yeah. Get ready, guys. Th- th- this had a great soundtrack, though. It was like... From Predator. Yes. <laughs> I was I was waiting to see. I was like, is that, is that Predator? Yeah. Anytime. And then, uh, what, and they're in the helicopter, and little Richard comes on. Was it Long Tail Sally? Yeah, yeah. yeah. And Doctor Medford's like, I like this song. So Doctor Medford pulls out a, a thing of dip and says, "This stuff will make you a sexual tyrannosaurus." <laughs> and Pat says, "Pat says my girlfriend's." <laughs> And then Bob goes, oh, I guess I don't have a shot then. Huh? <laughs> uh, now I want to watch Predator. <laughs> cut, cut to the next day at noon, and everyone in the previous meeting is out on the desert by the giant mound. The men are, un- the men are unloading bazookas while the two, doctor, the two Dr. Medfords watch. They set up two bazooka teams to lay down the phosphorus. Bob loading for Major Kibby and the general loading for Ben while he shoots. As the general is loading Ben's bazooka, he says, This is the first time I've ever loaded one of these babies. Ben says, That makes two of us. This is the first time I've ever given orders to a general. <laughs> Military. <laughs> first time I've ever given birth to a hand. Wait, what? <laughs> what? <laughs> Tap me on my head. <laughs> ben fires his bazooka, then Kibby fires his. Both teams fire about five rounds each, turning the area around the hole into a burning cinder. Ben and Bob then don fireproof suits and walk over to the entrance of the ant nest. They see one of the ants peek its head out, but they shoot it and quickly throw a bunch of cyanide grenades down the hole. Fade to a short time later, and we see Ben and Bob setting up ropes to rappel down into the nest with. Ben has a flamethrower on his back. He asks if the doctor thinks they're all dead down there. 
Harold believes so. They used enough gas. All parts of the nest should be saturated by now. Bob says, well, if I can raise an arm after we get out of this place, I'll show you just how saturated I can get. I was like, yeah, dude. Yeah. <laughs> the men see Pat walking over. She has her gear ready to go in the hole. That didn't sound right. She has her gear ready to go <laughs> down into the hole. <laughs> Bob asks what she's all made up for. She says she's going down there with him. When Bob protests, Pat says, someone with scientific knowledge has to go. My father is physically unable to do it. That leaves me. Bob says it's too dangerous, but Pat insists that a trained observer has to go into the nest. There are more important things to find out than whether or not all the ants are dead. You wouldn't know what to look for, and there's no time to give out a fast course in insect pathology. So let's stop all the talking and get on with it. It's, you know, it's, this is probably the most forceful Pat ever is. And at the same time, this is probably the most interesting her character ever is in this scene right here. Yeah. Mario's like, well, we should put one scene in there where the woman looks strong. It's a shame it just took, like, what, 30 more years to start giving a strong female. Well, less than that because of Ripley and everything. But uh, <laughs> but if you if you listen to What's-Her-Name from, from Hunger Games, it took another probably 70 years to get a strong female action lead out there, right? Yep. All those young people who don't do the research. That was the most preposterous statement that What's Her Nuts ever fucking made. I know. I'm just like, don't, 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 don't. Just, what's her, what was her name? What's her name? Who's that? Jennifer Lawrence. Jennifer, Jennifer Lawrence. Yeah. I mean, come on, hey, Jennifer. Hey, Jennifer, why don't you uh, go do some research? I don't watch movies. I just act in them. But okay. Like, that's fair. But, like, fair. how could you not know, like, Alien? Like, like Ellen Ripley? You know what I mean? I mean, like, come on. You know, even Cynthia Rothrock came out and she's like, um, tap, tap, tap. Yeah. I could kick your ass. Yeah. Seriously. <laughs> fucking seriously. Even now. Like, now, like nowadays, Cynthia Rothrock could fucking kick Cynthia her Rothrock ass. could still kick 95% of Hollywood's ass. A hundred percent fucking agreed. And you know what? Go, uh, is her, is her movie still being backed on, on Kickstarter or whatever? Yeah. Or she's got like another, uh, she, uh, Black Creek. She's, uh, blackcreek.com. Go to blackcreek, blackcreek.com and you can check out, she's, keeps putting up like new incentives. She did an Indiegogo for a week to raise some funds. She did a, like a Facebook marketplace thing for some funds. You can still contribute to her project, uh, after the Kickstarter ended and she's making a kick-ass Western that a lot of people want to be a part of. So that's cool. Um, she's, and it's going to be a legit badass Western and she's going to kick some Irish as a fan of, of, off kilter west westerns like the quick and the dead and uh even i'd say even last man standing is almost like yeah. a western you know but but off kilter a little bit um i'm i'm excited for that one yeah me too me too um if i can visit the set i'll give you some exclusives you better visit something while you're there be working on it <laughs> better better visit, visit cynthia rockthrock while you're there if you know what i mean <laughs> Wow, wow, bow, chicka, wow, wow. <laughs> oh, they uh, they all have gas masks as they go down into the uh, the the nest. Yeah, this is creepy. This is cool. Mm-hmm. Agree. And it's a set, but it still looks it's still interesting. Yeah, the team of three walk around the deserted corridors, passing by giant dead ants. Pat touches the wall and says, "Look, held together by saliva." Vin says, "Spits all that's holding me together too." <laughs> They move deeper into the nest. As they're walking down another corridor, they see the wall start to move. 
Just then, a giant ant breaks through, and Bob and Ben light it up. Bob shoots it, and Ben uses his flamethrower. Bob asks how come the gas didn't kill him. Pat says the chamber must have caved in, protecting them. Bob says if they run into any more live ones, science or no science, they're getting out of there. The three of them make their way to the queen's chamber. They see a bunch of lifeless eggs littered about. Pat makes her way to the bigger eggs in the back and sees that two have hatched. This is what I was afraid of. She takes a picture, then tells the two men to destroy everything in the chamber. Burn it. Burn everything. <laughs> Burn it all. The men light the place up like Ripley and aliens. <laughs> Let's rock. <laughs> yeah, but you're right, dude. Like, yes, this was this is a set and everything, but like, it looks cool, and and the ants look always look cool, like in it and whatnot. Um, and I must, I have to point out. There are only ever three ants at a time. They do a great job of making it look like there's more, but they only const- the production only constructed three, and they do a you know do just movie magic to make it look like they have more. Yeah, yeah, you get the illusion that there's a whole lot of more ants. Cut to Doctor Harold Medford looking over the photos Pat took. They're all back in the police station now. Pat says there are no larvae or pupae in the egg chamber. They all seem to hatch directly from the eggs. I attribute it to part of the whole mutation process. Harold agrees and asks if she's sure uh, two of them left the nest. You found no winged ants in the nest anywhere? Pat says they saw only worker ants. The general says, I don't get it. You two act like it was the end of the world. Harold says it could be. The two empty egg cases contain queen ants. Newborn queen ants have wings. So have, the cons- so have their consorts, male ants. The brutal fact is, we didn't destroy this first nest soon enough. Two young queens hatched out, dried their wings, and flew away, each with one or more winged males. They've gone on their wedding flight. You needn't worry about the males because they'll die very quickly, but the queens. Ben cuts them off and asks, Are you telling us there are going to be other nests? The doctor replies that a single queen is capable of laying thousands of eggs. From those will hatch dozens of other queens. The general asks how far they can fly. Harold doesn't know. They have limited flying power and are mostly dependent on on winds and thermal currents to carry them along. You guess. Bob says, <laughs> I like it. He's like, I don't know. You guess. Bob says, I thought today was the end of them. Dr. Medford ominously replies, no, we haven't seen the end of them. We've only had a close view of the beginning of what may be the end of us. He tells the general to inform Washington. And that's the dialogue that's it's just like, no, we haven't seen the end of them. We've only had a close view of the beginning of what may be the end of us. What a what a cumbersome sentence. And I mean, he delivers it fine. And like every you you heard me and I'll obviously trim it so it'll probably sound better, but Zach's heard me stumble a lot over the dialogue already in this movie, and I it's just it's of the time dialogue, you know? Yeah, I mean, they have some bulky lines to deliver, and they do it masterfully. And I might add that whenever I transcribe the dialogue exactly how it is, I always get this little blue under thing telling me that this is not grammatically correct. And I'm like, it's 1954 grammatically correct. How dare you? What are God damn it? fucking paper clip showing up saying <laughs> do you need help donate now D- 
to get rid of the evil satanic paperclip. Oh, only Jesus Christ can determine what's spelled correctly or not. Not Webster Dictionary. Only Jesus Christ can save you from the paperclip <laughs> Satan. <laughs> boy, oh boy. I hope, guys and gals... Yeah, fuck organized religion. The fucking <laughs> Come evil. on. It's fucking evil. You know. Boop, uh. boop, 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 boop. <laughs> I really didn't appreciate the way you offended my, my religion in your episode titled Them. In your, boop, ep- boop, 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 boop. In your episode titled Fuck You. <laughs> <laughs> titled Billy Graham's Piece of Crap. Uh, Kenneth Copeland, fucking the yes. devil. Oh, God. Cut to the Medford doctors and Bob and Ben in D.C. meeting with a room full of military officials. The doctors are starting up a film projector. One of the men in the room asks if Sergeant Ben Peterson's superior officers know about the ants. Ben says they do not. The general and the doctor felt secrecy was essential. When asked if he felt this, when asked if he felt the secrecy was essential, Ben says he does. No police force in the world would be able to handle the panic if they found out these babies were loose. Harold says they are ready for their presentation. Now, some of you have displayed incredulous attitudes towards our reports and photographs. The rest of you are trying to understand the gravity of our situation, but repeatedly ask how really serious it is. Now, for your identification, I've prepared a short film which I hope will give you some idea of the nature of the creatures we're up against. In a small way, of course. Robert, please turn out the lights. Now, these ants and related species are common to most of America. As a matter of fact, you can find them in backyards, empty lots and fields throughout the temperate zones of the world. They haven't changed in either form or habits for more than 50 million years. Here, for instance, is one such specimen that got himself trapped in amber, which we know is at least that old. Ah, now we come to some different kinds of ants. The big fellow there, feeding on the smaller red grease eaters, is of a savage species called Campanotus vicinus meyer. He's of a desert variety. Very similar to the giant mutations we found in New Mexico. There is a side view of a small nest. Those white objects are ant eggs. Ants don't see well at all. They hear, smell, and locate objects entirely with their radar-like antennae. Only after food or an enemy is located with the antennae are the savage mandibles put to work. Now, gentlemen, watch this demonstration of power. A pebble has blocked the entrance to the nest. That creature is determined to remove the obstacle. Note how the mandibles are used to grasp the pebble and finally pull it aside with only a slight assist from another end. Now, there's the same pebble on a laboratory scales. Balancing it is a dish containing 20 ants. We've learned that one of these quarter-inch-long insects can lift 20 times its own weight. And that's equal to one of you lifting a ton and a half or more. And here are rare shots of a newborn queen and her consorts. Technically, she should be referred to as a princess until after the mating flight. 
Now there is a close shot of a winged male. The males are unequipped for survival beyond the mating and die soon afterwards. The queen flies on, or more precisely, is borne by the winds until her need prompts her to seek a place to lay eggs. Does a queen ever fly away from her nest once she's established it? No, never. She loses her wings after the wedding flight. See, one has dropped off now. Now she starts her function of establishing a place in which to lay her eggs and begin the nest. Queens live quite a long time. They continue to lay eggs from the one mating for from 15 to 17 years. Here are ants at war. As you can see, ants are savage, ruthless, and courageous fighters. This fight lasted 72 hours between those two alone. Ants are the only creatures on Earth, other than man, who make war. They campaign, they are chronic aggressors, and they make slave laborers of the captives they don't kill. None of the ants previously seen by man were more than an inch in length, most considerably under that size. But even the most minute of them have an instinct and talent for industry, social organization, and savagery that makes man look feeble by comparison. Uh, how large were the ants you found? Oh, the smallest measured nine feet in body length. That, gentlemen, is why you are here to consider this problem, and I hope solve it. Because unless you solve it, unless these queens are located and destroyed before they've established thriving colonies and can produce, heaven alone knows how many more queen ants, man, as the dominant species of life on Earth, will probably be extinct within a year, Doctor. So, as you can see, the stakes at this point are are pretty high in the movie. Yeah, and at, at this point I was like, oh, I'm getting a science video lesson right now. It goes along. I, I got to be honest. I, I really enjoy this movie a lot. Don't get me wrong. But this scene goes a little long where I'm just like, wow, I, I feel like I'm back in seventh grade science right now learning about ants. Dude, I am 100% with you, my man. I, as much as I love this movie, I wouldn't call it a perfect film by any stretch of the imagination. Yeah. And I didn't, even now, I'm watching this, I don't understand why we need a five-minute exposition dump like in the middle of the movie. And I feel like it's kind of just stuff that we already know, but it's like just human beings, like we sort of know it. But I guess they just really wanted to just emphasize the, the threat, I guess. Yeah, and it kind of restarts the momentum. It does, and that's why I say that this movie's kind of like a, a two-part film because we are literally at the halfway point, yeah. and it just it shifts again. It becomes a sort of a different movie, um, and I still, like like you said, and as much as I love this movie, I still love the first half prior. Yeah, and it's going to get interesting. Yeah, for sure, for sure. Cut to a shot of a senator leaving the meeting we just saw. He gets hounded by reporters wanting to know what the secret meeting is all about. The senator gives the typical no comment and drives away. The two reporters wonder about all the secrecy and why there are so many radio transmission towers in the building. Inside, we see a military nerve center. 
They have people monitoring news reports for possible clues as to where the queen ants are. The stuff they are looking for is printed on a wall, and it is kidnappings and missing persons, unsolved murders, alleged suicides, migrations of wildlife, thefts of sugar, syrups, or sweets, strange phenomenon such as flying saucers, strange odors, count me, (laughs) (laughs) high-pitched sounds, unnatural things, alive or dead. So it's basically they're doing what like we now use AI algorithms to do when we like people scrub like Instagram and stuff like that. They are literally just have an army of people reading reports, looking for these sort of keywords and stuff. Yep. So this is posted on the wall inside the office. (laughs) We now see a very young and hunky Leonard Nimoy in one of his first fucking roles as like a military officer, he receives a telegram. He looks at it and read, and, and the telegram reads, Brownsville, Texas, Alan Crotty, Lazy K Ranch foreman, insists reason for crashing his plane was due to seeing flying saucers shaped like ants. Crotty being held psychiatric ward, Mercy Hospital. Leonard Nimoy hands the telegram to the female enlisted personnel. I don't know military terms all that well. Um, at a typewriter, he says, "Those Texans. When bigger stories are told, Texans will tell them." That ought to fit in with the kind of stuff they're looking for upstairs. The lady asks if anyone knows what's going on. Leonard Nimoy says, "No, real T.S. stuff, top secret." She sends the report up the chain of command. I did not recognize that was Leonard Nimoy until today. No, neither did you pointed it out to me. I'm like, oh, okay, sure, <laughs> yeah. And it, the thing is, he only has, like, side shots in this, like, very brief scene, so it's kind of hard yeah. to tell. But once you know it's him, you can tell it's him. I'm like, where's his pointy ears? <laughs> and his weird eyebrows and everything. That's I do natural, like, right? And here's what, I, here's what I noted the dialogue is of its time. He says, you know, it, the report is TS, you know, real TS stuff, top secret. Whereas if he was talking to an enlisted person, they would understand what TS meant. Him saying yep. top secret was for the audience. I feel like we've just gotten better as a, as a medium about telling the audience things without making it sound like you're telling the audience things. Yeah, no, this, but this was a different time when they had to do, do that for everything. Because, you know, you can't count on people being like, uh, you know, Googling like, oh, what is this? You know what I mean? Right. Yeah. No. Cut to our four leads reading the message. Agent Bob Graham tells Major Kibby they will be there in three hours, then leaves with Pat Medford, Dr. Pat Medford leaving Ben and her father behind to continue monitoring reports. Ben takes a pen with a flag on it and plants it on a giant map right where Brownsville, Texas is. Cut to Bob and Pat talking to Alan Crotty, played by... Fess Parker. Davy fucking Crockett. Davy, Davy Crockett, king of the wild frontier. I sing that... But with other when you take lyrics, a shit when you when you take it a dump, oh, Davy, <laughs> I sing it. I'm gonna say at least five times a week, my entire life. I'll just I'll sing something. It'll be different like lyrics, but I don't know if I've ever seen an episode of Davy Crockett. But I know exactly when I saw Fast Fest Parker, you know who who he was and what that was from, and I know that Davy Crockett song. So how big of a cultural phenomenon was was that a movie or a TV show? I think it was a TV show, wasn't it? Okay, uh, I'm not. I'm not. 
I could be mistaken, but it's like sixties or seventies. Yeah, one of the one of the parents named his kid after Davy Crockett. Okay, that's hard. That's hardcore. <laughs> okay, that's hardcore, dude. <laughs> wow. All right. He's like, oh, sure, okay, sure. sure. <laughs> but in this, he he plays like a oh, very like a gullible kind of soldier guy, you know. And, and, and well, 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 you know. Did you get Jimmy Stewart vibes from him? What what makes you what makes you think that? Jim Jimmy Stewart. <laughs> Is there a ball gag on the table over there? Because you because <laughs> you put it in my mouth. <laughs> Okay, I'm gonna try to do his his dialogue in the Jimmy. Davy Crockett's voice. a movie, by the way. It's a movie. Okay, it's a movie. okay, it's a movie. All right. I assume you were never a big fan of that, were you? I assume. I mean, I guess I grew up a little bit listening, watching those kind of movies because my grandfather. But I was more of like a Lone Ranger kind of guy. If it didn't have an action figure for it, then I was wasn't really into it. Oh, was Davy Crockett one of those live-action Disney movies that sucked back in the 70s and 60s? Yes. Ugh, that's... I hated those movies. Hated them. The wonderful world of Disney! Man. You know, again, you know, seeing aliens at the age of eight made me not really a big Disney kid movie guy, you know, when I was a kid. I became a man really early in 1986. it, when I saw aliens in the theater with my mother. With I saw with my father. You, you, you saw, saw with your father. Did you? I forget. Did you see aliens in the theater with your mom? Or yeah. Did you, I you saw did? aliens and the fly back to back. It was a double feature. Christ. <laughs> That's a long double feature, by the way. Oh yeah, yeah. I think, yeah. The movie end. The movies ended like at ten o'clock at night or something. I saw it at the Meridian Quad in San Jose, California. But you were closer to 10 at that age. I was closer to probably 8 or so. I was 10, but still, I don't think I'd I'd still wait. Yeah, 10. I could show Bodie it at 10. Would you I, show him the fly at 10? No. <laughs> no. No, you know that scene when he plays the brings the hooker home or whatever, and she's like laying in the, she's sitting in the chair with her jacket on and nothing underneath. And at a, as a 10-year-old, I was like, this is this feels weird. <laughs> like this isn't right. I shouldn't be here. Why, why is my head moving like this in scanners? <laughs> Dude, I'll still say the most awkward, awkward movie going experience of my life was watching single white female in the theater next to my dad. I was what thirteen or fourteen or something, and I was I was into everything I was seeing, but at the same time, I was sitting next to my dad, and so that was awkward. But doesn't she diddle herself yes. in that too? Yes, and I couldn't wait to get that movie on VHS to rewatch it. But at the same time, again, sitting next to my dad. Weird. Hey, did you? Oh shit! It's my dad. It's my did you see that shit? Oh, oh, sorry, dad. Uh, by the way, we don't have a podcast where I can talk about this stuff. Exactly. But by the way, happy birthday to my dad. He's uh, yeah. Happy birthday to your dad. <laughs> He would have been uh he would have been 70. He would have been 70, so. Right on. So, Alan Crotty, played by Fess Parker. Crotty, not karate, but Crotty. <laughs> C R O T T Y. What an unfortunate T-T-boy. name. The pilot is upset about being in a nut house. Quote unquote a nut house, guys. Well, I don't want to be in this nut house. Nut house. <laughs> when he knows he's not crazy. 
I saw these things. Okay, I can't do it. <laughs> yeah, you can. Yes, you can. Oh, yes, you I'll can. Say, oh, Jeremy Stewart. Okay, here we go. I saw these things with my own two eyes. You think anyone can make up a story like that? A guy would have to be nuts to... Oh, no. <laughs> he, he realizes what he's saying, and then he goes over to Major Kibby and points out the wings on his chest. Look. Oh, I'll say it. Jeremy Stewart. I always have to start with my what I know. Yeah, how to, oh, Jeremy Stewart. Okay. <laughs> pump the brakes. Pump the gas. Pump the gas. <laughs> Look, you're a flyer. You didn't get that yard goods on your chest sitting on the ground. You've seen guys blow their stacks, haven't you? You think I act and talk like a guy who's lost his marbles? I do like how Kibby's like, nah. Like, nah. He's like, nah, dog. You, you don't, yeah. you know? Pat asks for uh, Mr. Crotty to tell them what he saw. I've already told these head-shrinking doctors a four dozen times. Jeremy Stewart. I tell it and I get laughed at and clucked over and clucked over and laughed at. He sits down and looks at everyone in the room. You promise not to laugh at me? Bob says, they promise. All right, Jim, Jeremy Stewart. Okay. <laughs> okay. Jeremy Jim Stewart. Jeremy Jim Stewart. Okay. I was flying south from Corpus Christi heading here, Brownsville. I turned in from the Gulf, heading for the airport about 20 miles out. And all of a sudden, I see these these flying saucers. Three of them. One big one and two little ones. I had to do some fancy flying or they'd have run right into me. Uh, Jeremy Stewart. I went, into, I went into a dive and lost them. And I sat down in the first place I saw. So it was a street. I'd never been so rattled in my life. I cracked up a little shirt. I plowed into an old Ford. I plowed into an old Ford and ended up on someone's front porch. I'm losing it. I'm losing it. Yeah, Let me start. <laughs> but, but who wouldn't lose their head a little after something like that? Pat asks, they were flying saucers? Mr. Crotty says he doesn't know what else to call them, but they were shaped like ants. He says the big one was 15 feet long and had wings, and the other two seemed to be chasing the big one. Jim Stewart. They were zooming around like regular kamikazes. About scared me out of my pants. Excuse me, ma'am. Pat tells Mr. Crotty that they believe him. He gets excited and starts to ask them to get him out of there. But she cuts him off and asks which direction the flying saucers were going. He says, do west. Bob stands up and says they'll talk to the doctor about getting him out of there. Mr. Crotty is very appreciative of this. Outside in the hallway, though, the doctor meets up with Bob, Pat, and Major Kibby and asks how the talk went. Bob says he should keep them locked up. The doctor looks surprised because he just recommended Mr. Crotty's release. The doctor thinks it's just a publicity stunt. Bob says that the government would appreciate it if he's kept in the hospital so he doesn't get the word out. He has to have absolutely no visitors. And if any information is given out about him, Washington will hold you responsible, doctor. I'm sorry I can't tell you why this is essential. We'll let you know as soon as possible. We'll send you a wire and tell you when he's well. Pat, Bob, and Kibby leave the doctor standing there bewildered. And I, I like the scene, not just because I think, I, I think you know, uh, uh, Fess Parker's fun to watch and he's doing his thing. There's like a lot of energy there. But I like the scene because it feels very contemporary. Like they're like, yeah, man, we'll get you out of here. And they go right out to the fucking doctors and be like, nah, dog, you can't can't let him out. Like, you know. Yeah. It's just, it seems like every, like every conspiracy theory. And I mean, they do, I, I do believe that things start and, you know, like things start truthfully somewhere and then kind of spiral outwards. But I, I think this kind of shit did happen, you know? Yeah. I, uh, I wrote that down. I'm like, Oh, this is very timely. Right. 
poor old Mr. Karate. Ding, ding, ding. <laughs> you were a... stuck in a psycho ward. Is, is that the Mr. Crowley song? Yes. Good, good man. Good man. Who's, is that, um, who sings that? That's Ozzy. That's Ozzy. Yeah, I was, was going to say it, and I should have gone with my gut. Now I sound like the asshole, but okay. You're an asshole. Yodio. But you know who Jennifer Lawrence is. Yeah, and I also fucking knew who, know who Ellen Ripley is, too. And yeah. Sarah Connor. Yeah. And Dr. Pat Medford. God damn it. God damn it. God damn it, Pat. Back in the Them Nerve Center, Bob, Pat, and Dr. Harold Medford are trying to figure out where the ants are heading based on Mr. Crotty's information. Harold suggests they inform the Mexican government and keep searching the nation as high as Santa, as high north as Santa Barbara in California and as far south as Texas. Bob says that's a lot of area to cover. Just then the phone rings and Harold answers it. Then he says you'll be right there. Cut to Harold in another room of the building. This one is filled with looks like naval officers or personnel or whatever. But they they seem to be navy versus army. Yeah, it's all it, the all the at, all the facets of the military, right? Are are on display here. A report came in about a nest of giant ants hatching aboard a ship at sea. In fact, the report is coming in as they speak. As the soldier is typing out the telegram, the movie fades to the ship and we see someone desperately typing on the telegraph uh, while shots are being fired in the background. The camera pulls out and we see men fighting and getting killed by ants while the guy is on the telegraph. Eventually, an ant breaks through and kills the guy delivering the message. I always thought this scene was really cool. Yeah, it's intense. It reminds me like something out of Starship Troopers or something, you know? Oh, yeah, big time. I mean, that movie... Oh, it's a lot to this, too. Agreed. Cut to Pat putting a pin in the map where the ship was last reported. They read a report from another ship that came across the one with the ants. There were only two survivors, but they couldn't check the ship due to the infestation. The order was given to sink the infested ship with naval gunfire. One of the Brasks asks how the ants could have gotten on the ship without anyone noticing, and Harold says is probably they probably sneaked on board when it was anchored in Acapulco, Mexico, for three days and four nights. Pat reads a report that one of the hatch covers on hold number one was open the entire time, even at night. Since most of the crew was on shore, the queen could have boarded at any time. An open hole would prove most inviting. <laughs> Doesn't it always? <laughs> the the hole of the glory, USS Glory. The, the glory <laughs> hole was violated. It was most inviting. <laughs> Just goes to show you that when Satan gets a hold of a hole, what it can do to a man. <laughs> that That's actually true. <laughs> Speak from experience. My hole wasn't faded by Satan. Send money now. Use your credit look card. At, look at the number at the bottom of the TV and dial it on your phone and write a check to get Satan out of the glory of hole. The hole of glory. The glory of my hole. Sing it. Glory, glory, hole. Perfect. Hey everybody, Corey here. I just wanted to let you know that we'll be right back after these short messages. 
Hello everybody, I'm Adam. I'm John. And every week we are giving you a blast from our past. We are the podcast that brings you full-on movie breakdowns, TV show reviews, album reviews, top tens, and more, all from the things of our nostalgic past. So please join us every single week on the Blast From Our Past podcast. You can find us on Spotify, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, however you listen to podcasts, you can find us, and we would love to have you take a trip with us to the land of nostalgia. I'm John, and I'm the host of Action Action. Every week, I'm joined by James. hey And Dustin. Hello. And each week, we review, debate, and rank a different action movie. We're creating the ultimate list of action movies. From awful to awesome. So if you want to hear three more white guys with beards talk about action movies. And argue about where they belong on our list. And decide you hate us because we made fun of your favorite movie. Join us every Tuesday, and you can find us on your favorite podcatcher. And Steven Seagal is a joke. <laughs> and now, back to the show. There was a discussion about whether or not they should go public or not. The two doctors still think it would cause a panic. Pat walks over to the map and shows them a few spots where the dead ants were found, then tells them they have a strong lead in Los Angeles. Mr. Graham and Sergeant Ben Peterson are there now. They were flown west by Major Kibby to check a rather large sugar theft. 40 pounds, to be exact. Now, this should be cool for you because all of this was filmed over in East L.A. Um, you know, shit, dude. Things, so many movies we've already seen using, like, the, the what, the First Street Bridge and, and in between the First and Fourth Street Bridges and stuff like that. Yeah. And we've seen all of this shit before, but, I mean, this is 1954, dude. It's really cool. It's really cool uh, to see the modern, the modernization now. But what, like the LA River, you're gonna see the LA River in this quote unquote LA River, and it's currently full. It's currently full. No, sh- I've never seen it full. Neither have I. Wow, you guys have been getting that much rain. Yep. Wow. Damn, dude. Damn. And as of this recording, we're going to get some more pretty soon, too. Damn. I mean, I was just going to say that, like, L.A. River in this movie looks exactly the same as it does now and exactly the same as we see it in movies like Drive and shit like that. Yeah. But but right now, today, in uh, end of March of 2023, it actually has fucking water in it. That's it has amazing. water in it, and you can't just drive your car in it like they do in this. Yeah. Like, yeah, like they do in this in every other fucking movie and everything. Yeah. yeah. Wow. That's That's wild, dude. I didn't know you guys were getting that much rain. I know that on the ep- an episode, the uh, uh, Carpenter Factor that we did uh, a couple weeks ago, you were getting a pretty heavy downpour. I could, I could actually hear it, dude. I could hear it on the episode. Yeah, to the point where I'm like, uh, you might want to edit the sound on this because it's dumping down right now. Spoiler alert: there was nothing I could do. So, but it, it only lasted for like three minutes or something. Like it, the, the downpour wasn't very long. It's crazy. Yeah, we've been getting a lot of uh, up here as well. Um, so yeah, so cut to Ben and Bob at the local train yard in Los Angeles. They're inspecting a box car with a giant hole in the side of it. Like Gramps Johnson's store, the hole was ripped outwards, not in. Gramps Johnson. I mean, his, his legacy lives on through the entire fucking movie. His shriggled Johnson legacy. There you go. Yeah, that, you know that thing fucking just got wasted by the formic acid, just melted his giant. Oh, my dick, what am I doing with my dick? <laughs> Gramps my Johnson. Gramps Johnson. My Gramps Johnson's gone. <laughs> my Gramps Johnson melted off. 
Just kill yeah. me. Kill me, Ant. Kill me. Kill me now. World's <laughs> over. What's the point? Seriously. The Bob point asks, is. <laughs> sorry. Bob asks the local detective when it happened. Uh, it was last night. The night watchman reported it. Ben asks where he is now, and the officer says he's in lockup because they think he stole the sugar. Bob and Ben go to see the night watchman, but the detective stops Ben and asks, The least you can do after spoiling my day off is telling me how come a government cop is so interested in this deal. Ben looks at him and says, He's got a sweet tooth, and then fades to the next scene. Yeah, that's nice. You do get the sense that they do mention a lot in here about, like, why are we doing this on a Sunday? Can't, can't the can't the ants wait, you know? And you realize that, like, man, back in the day, fucking, even, like, the cops, like, ain't nobody working on a fucking Sunday. Satan works on a Sunday. That was perfect. That was fucking perfect. I was going to add, if you want to see a really fucking cool shot of downtown L.A. completely abandoned— Go watch fucking Omega Man with Charlton Heston. And uh, there's a cool-ass helicopter scene of him driving through the city. And, like, no one's there. And it's not fucking CGI because they didn't have that back then. It's because they shot it, like, at 5 a.m. on a Sunday, you know, in L.A. And back in the day, downtown L.A. was all commerce. No people lived down there fucking, like, at all. And it is a an – am- I'm not the – biggest omega man fan i think it's a it's fine um yeah. i love that book by the way uh um um uh, i am richard legend. matheson yeah. yeah richard matheson's i am legend it's one of my favorite books it's a novella but it's i love it um but if you've never seen omega man it's worth checking out for just that shot alone better than i am legend with will smith i 100 percent fucking agree i saw that in the theater I got so excited about halfway through that movie because I remember my friend sitting next to me. I tapped him. I go, they're going to do it. They're, they're doing I Am Legend. Everything is right, you know? And then the ending, they, they didn't stick the landing. And I was like, oh. nope. And it's and that's one of those stories, without giving it away, that's one of those stories where sort of everything hinges on the very end. And it's sort of one of those things where you realize, oh, I've been looking at everything wrong this whole movie. So if you don't do that, then you literally miss the entire fucking point of the story. Yeah. I'm glad we're simpatico on that. Simpatico. Mm. Que simpatico. Que simpatico. (laughs) Cut to Bob and Ben talking to the night watchman. He says he's been with the railroad for almost 30 years and never had a blot against his record. Bob says that the detective seems to think he made a deal to look away while someone stole the sugar. What kind of sense does that make? Is sugar a rare cargo? Is there a black market for it? Did you ever hear a hear a fence for hot sugar? If I he makes some good points. If I was gonna make a deal with crooks to to steal something, it wouldn't be for forty tons of sugar. And I swear I didn't hear a thing Friday night. I mean, you make a compelling case, man. Yeah. Just then, Ben comes to the door, and we see a woman crying in the next room. He says to Bob, "That woman just identified the body of her husband. I want you to see him right away." Bob and Ben go to leave, but before they do, they tell the night watchman he can go home. They don't think he has anything to do with the stolen sugar. So since he didn't see the ants, they can let him go, you know? And that guy, I didn't track who that guy was, but I've seen him in westerns and other things. Yeah, he looked familiar as well. To me, he looked he looked as familiar as the more guy or the um the doctor guy at the beginning, you know? I just like, where have I seen him before? It's like, I, I don't yeah. Know. Bunch of westerns, I think mostly that yeah. I recognize him from. 
At the morgue, Bob and Ben are looking at the body. We don't see what they're looking at, but the doctor says, I don't think this happened in a machine because any machine that pulled him in hard enough to tear his arm off the shoulder would also have chopped up his face. Look at the deep laceration across his chest. I can't figure it, except he died from shock and loss of blood. Ben says that the police found him this morning at 630. His car jumped over a curb and ran into a signboard, but not hard enough to do that. They couldn't find the other arm. His wife said he left the house around a quarter to six and had their two kids with him. No sign of the kids yet. And wow. I like the description of what happened to him because you don't see it, but that's a that's a gnarly fucking wound, you know? It's Yeah, yeah, just based on the descriptions and everything. And I, I just want to backtrack really quick. That actor that I we mentioned, yeah. his name's Dub Taylor. He died in uh, 1994 at the age of 87. He was in a bunch of amazing movies. Oh, I'm no going to list off some of the movies. Please. The Get The Getaway, Sam Peckinpah's The Getaway, The Wild Bunch, <laughs> Thunderbo- uh, Thunderbolt and Lightfoot with Clint Eastwood and Jeff Bridges. Uh, he was also... I thought he, you were going to say Thunder Lips. <laughs> he was in Thunder Lips. Um, a really underrated cowboy movie called my hero my heroes have always been cowboys he was in starman the tv series (laughs) no (laughs) for one episode cannonball run two um he was in soggy bottom usa uh 1941 he was in uh the rescuers he was the voice of digger in the rescuers i mean this guy he's been in, in a lot of oh uh pony sorry doc hooker's bunch i think he was one of the leads in that uh gator with burt reynolds anyways the list goes on and on he was in over 260 movies and television series so dub taylor worth mentioning jesus i i really didn't think there were going to be that many people in this movie like when when i first picked it you know and it for us to discuss i just didn't think so but that's pretty impressive yeah yeah i I mean you should like i think people will appreciate the fact that we we gave him a shout out because he's a legendary actor and thank you for for pointing that out i appreciate it cut to bob talking to the widow they ask if her husband was accustomed to taking the boys out so early in the morning she says that since her husband works two jobs the only time he has to play with the boys is on sunday mornings bob asks where they usually go but it varies boat rides at macarthur park i just liked here in the macarthur park yeah, uh, the too. zoo Uh, She doesn't know where they were heading this time, though. Ben pops his head in and tells Bob he has to talk to him. In the next room, Ben introduces Bob to the two patrolmen that found the car and the dead husband. He tells Bob that Pat and Harold Medford are are flying out and will be here tonight. Bob asks one of the police officers to show him on the map where they found the body. It's nowhere near MacArthur Park. They need to find out where he took these kids this morning and fast. They mull over some ideas that don't pan out, but Bob asks if they made any arrests during the morning. One of the officers says, three drunks and a traffic citation. Bob wants to talk to all of them in the off chance someone might have seen something. Cut to Bob and Ben talking to two of the drunks at the police station. He asks one of them where they were going when they were arrested, and he says he doesn't know. He doesn't even know where he was coming from. The other one isn't much help either. Bob talks to the traffic citation. 
A young lady who says all she did all she did was go through a red light at 60 miles an hour? Were you running from something? She says no. She was trying to get home after spending the night with a sick friend who she won't name because he's married. All the guys Oh, adultery in the <laughs> 50s. Yep. All the guys smirk and Bob tells her she can go. He says he's through with the other two drunks as well. Ben asks about the third drunk, and the officer says he's in the alcoholic ward at the hospital. Cut to the alcoholic ward at the hospital. The doctor says that the patient snuck out on Saturday night, and the cops brought him back here this morning. Bob, Ben, and Major Kibbe talked to Jensen about what he saw. Did uh, did the actor who played Jensen uh, jump out at you at all? So there's an alcoholic ward patient played by Harry Wilson. So... First of all, Dub Taylor's uncredited. Uh, and then the two alcoholic ward patients are uncredited. Harry Tyler, who plays Harry, and then Harry Wilson, I think, who plays uh, the other one. <laughs> they they both, neither of them jumped out to me. Both of them passed away uh, before the 80s. Um, and, and, and then Olin Howland is the one that plays uh, Jensen. And he was actually in Gone with the Wind. Oh. And he was actually the old guy in the blob that I think finds the blob and then it kind of like, you know, goes down his arm and all that kind of stuff. In the original in, blob? In the very in the very yeah, the original blob. He was also um uh he's, yeah, he's he's been in a shit ton of stuff. I think he worked up until wow, two thousand and seventeen. Holy shit. Nope, that's oh. wrong. Nope, that's wrong. Hold on. He said he died in 1959. Why does he have a credit in uh, 2017? They must have yeah. used archival footage or something like yep. that. Yeah, his last credit is in 1959. But I think I think blob the blob is the his biggest standout role. Yeah, that's cool. Cool. Yeah. Cool. 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 Yeah. So he didn't he didn't jump out at you then. <laughs> no, he didn't jump out at me and go. Touch the hand of God if you want to <laughs> defeat Lucifer and Satan. I do want to ask, because um, I don't remember from our conversation, have you ever seen the original Blob? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I owned it up until not that long ago. I, I think I have the I had the Criterion edition, and then I oh. sold it. Okay. It, I've never seen the original. It's I mean, good. It's okay. good. Okay. It's Steve McQueen. It's Steve McQueen. He's he's reserved. It's not full on Steve McQueen, but it's Steve McQueen, and I, I mean I love Steve McQueen. He's probably my favorite, one of my favorite old time actors. So uh, yeah, it's worth watching. Is he play the Matt Dillon role? Yeah, pretty much. Okay, okay. And he's way better than Matt Dillon. <laughs> Guys, and the gals. only thing about the Blob that I like would change is the casting of, or sorry, Kevin Dillon. Okay, I would change the cast. You're right. I'm just not a fan of Kevin Dillon. He doesn't do it for me. It's something about his face. He just look looks smug. He's, he's just not sexy, Jack. He's just not sexy, Jack. No, when when he pops up in No Escape, you know, with uh, Ray Liotta. Yep, yep. And I'm like, yep. I've loved in Ernie Hudson. I love that movie. He pops up, and I'm like, no, I just, you know, people are like, oh, did you watch Entourage? No, I don't need to see a bunch of douchebags in Hollywood walking around with, <laughs> yeah, seriously, young actors, and no, yeah, no, I'm not a fan. Not a fan. Guys and gals, go check out our our, our blob episode. We recorded, uh, Jesus Christ, a couple years ago now at this point. Jesus Christ. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Touch the hand of God in the blob. Touch the penis of God. 
the, the pen, penis. <laughs> there we go. So yeah, so Jensen, and he's he's kind of a fun little character too. Um, Bob asks how he's doing, and he says fine. Then he looks at Major Kibby, who's in his uniform, and asks if they're looking for recruits. Kibby says no. Bob asks if he comes to the hospital often. Jensen says he likes it here. Bob asks Jensen if he saw anything unusual yesterday or this morning. He looks out the window next to his bed that's facing the L.A. River and says he saw some little airplanes this morning, but they're gone now. They didn't seem big enough to get into. Ben, ben asks big enough for what to get into. Jensen says the ants. Then tells Kibby that he wants to get out of here, but, it's, but he's not going to join the army to do it. Ben tries to get the conversation back on track and asks Jensen what kind of ants he saw. Biggins. <laughs> Biggins, which I think... I think was the the porn mag on Married with Children that Al loved was Biggins. <laughs> oh, the birth of Biggins started with them. <laughs> Biggins. I'm talking about them. What? Them what? Those, them Biggins. <laughs> them Biggins. <laughs> God, I used to love Married Children. Tried to watch it, you know, a few years ago. It's a tough watch. It's one of those sitcoms where the, the laugh track or the, the, the audience explodes after every line. And you're just like, oh, my God, can I get through the like, can I get through one scene without yeah. the audience laughing like 50 times? You know, I, I've heard a rumor that they're well, uh, I believe it was our buddy Fern said they're they're doing a considering an animated version of Mary with Children. That's, yeah. Uh, you know what? I'd, I'd be on board for that, man. To be I'm honest OK with, with that. Yeah, I'm OK with that. Me too. Because, I, I mean, as much as I'm not, like, into it now, I, I mean, it was a huge part of my childhood. I grew up watching Mirror's Same, Children. same, same. Booty time, booty time across the <laughs> USA. Booty time, booty time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, so, uh, Biggins, <laughs> he looks out the window and get, again and says, they aren't there now, though. Mostly at night I see them. Ben asks where. But Jensen looks back at Kippy and says, he'll make him a deal. You make me a sergeant in charge of the booze, and I'll enlist. And then he dives under the blankets and sings, Make me a sergeant, charge the booze, make me a sergeant, charge the booze, over and over, until Bob stops Jensen and demands he tells where tells them where he saw the ants. Jensen says, in the river. Bob turns around and looks like he does that, like one of those, Mother of God <laughs> looks, yeah. you know? Yep. Uh, he looks out the window and sees the dried up L.A. River. Um, I did like when Jensen was like, I, I saw water in there once, and I don't remember when. But Zach remembers when. <laughs> I remember. It was on Friday. And this will be you in, like, 50 years talking about, I remember when I saw. <laughs> Give me a beer. Give me a beer. Ah! <laughs> I'm a fucking parrot. Uh, he... Touched by the hand of God. <laughs> He points out the large openings in the side to Ben. Jensen, how long have you seen these things? He says a long time. Ben reminds Bob that Jensen was admitted five months ago. Jensen then goes back to singing, make me a sergeant, charge of the booze, while Bob and Ben and Kibby leave. The guy next to, John, to Jensen says, please, my nerves. Yeah, and it's so weird. Dude, this guy looks exactly like a Dick Tracy fucking goon character. <laughs> yeah. I yeah. He's like Jaws, that guy Jaws, uh, yeah. that actor. But but more 
but Jaws, the like from the the James Bond movies, but the nineteen fifty like Tramp version, you know. Yeah, yeah, it's it's a it's a combination of, uh, yeah, like some old timey actor and Richard Keel. I'm like, whoa! I did not expect that voice to come out of that guy. <laughs> and you've seen the Dick Tracy movie, right? Oh, I had the action figures. You know, who I, I I take it back, and I I like Dick Tracy, and I do think he's a Dick Tracy character in Rocketeer. Remember the goon with the trench yes. coat? That's what this guy fucking looked like. That guy, yeah, yeah, yeah. But that guy already he looked like a Dick Tracy character that because he's all makeup and everything. That guy did, too. yeah. That, yeah. that 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 was one of the highlights of the Rocketeer. By the way, Rocketeer doesn't hold up. Doesn't hold up. You mean you mean Jennifer Connelly's prestices weren't to, the highlight of the Rocketeer? That holds up. <laughs> yeah, it does. <laughs> I remember watching it with Bodie, and I'm like, okay, okay, then. You know that line in uh, Raising Arizona when when Hi is and sitting at the parole board, and he's like telling him he's not going to go back to jail anymore or do anything bad. And he goes, and the, and the parole board's like, okay, then. And then he gets back in jail. You know, I'm not going to do it again. Okay, then. <laughs> oh Fucking God. love that movie, man. Fucking love it. <laughs> and you know what? I like Rocketeer, too, but I agree I with wanna you. I want to like Rocketeer. It just doesn't hold up. Right. And and I, I have seen it recently, but it's all that movie's always had not the best pacing. Um, I think it's, yeah. it's, a, it's a bit slow, but like the Rocketeer stuff, I fucking love the me Jennifer too. Connelly stuff. Obviously I love, but obviously yeah. I'm not showing it to like my eight year old son or something like that. But I always felt like the pacing was kind of shitty in that movie. The pacing is shitty. They should have just made it a fun adventure movie with more about the, whole, yeah, it just, it does something that movie deserves to be redone, but, but keep the look of the Rocketeer 100% because they, they nailed that right out of the gate. Uh, keep everything about the special effects and whatnot the same, but yeah. And rehire Billy Campbell, because I love that dude. Yeah, I like Billy Campbell. I always thought he he should have had a better career than he did. He was on a sci-fi series. Didn't we watch a sci-fi series with him? We did. We started watching it, and then it kind of just, I think it fizzled out it for us. It got shitty. Yeah, yeah it got kind of shitty. Look at us, a couple watching a series together. <laughs> I know. Until we, until we lost interest. <laughs> Cut to Bob, Ben, and Kibby, Major Kibby, uh, being driven through the L.A. River to one of the sewer drains by one of the police officers from earlier. Bob asks where the hospital is, and, and the officer points it out. They use that landmark to get a direction on where the ants might be. As they are walking around the river, Bob finds a kid's airplane model. He hands it to the officer and tells him to get on the radio and find out if the widow knows if her kids have a toy like that. Kibby, Bob, and Ben look around the area. They walk up to one of the huge storm drains. Uh, and if you guys don't know, in L.A., these storm drains are so big you can, like, drive a car into them. Yeah. Put a note on that uh, airplane, by the way. Airplane may come up in our next breakdown. Oh. That, that kind of that like toy airplane, okay. model airplane. Just make a note of it. <laughs> okay, <Yep>. interesting. <laughs> ben finds tire marks in the mud. Then Kibby calls them over and points out another track in the mud. It's the same as in the desert. Bob says, it's them, all right? Drink, everybody. Drink. <laughs> yeah, you should be drunk by now if, if you do every time they say them. They stand by the entrance of the drain, but Ben says he doesn't smell any formic acid. Bob agrees, but thinks this could still be the location. 
All the pieces add up. They suspect the dad tried to get away but died in the car. That just leaves the location of the kids. Ben thinks they ran into the storm drain to get away. Just then, the cops just then the cop comes back from the car and confirms that the plane did belong to the kids. He says the widow just remembered her husband used to bring the boys down to the river to fly it. Ben asks where the tunnels go, but the officer doesn't know for sure. There are more than 700 miles of them under the city. I don't know if that's accurate or not, but if it is, that's insane. Well, I wonder if that counts all the those other tunnels and, and whatnot. You know, remember the ones from, like, I think, like, True Detective Season 2 and everything? Like, Oh, yeah. Yeah. And by, and by the way, guys and gals, we got, like, I think 15 minutes left in the movie, but a lot of stuff happens pretty quickly. Cut to a bunch of reporters standing outside a room. When a man comes out, they hound him, asking why the Army is sending troops into the L.A. area, and why is there a special press conference being held at 5 p.m. on a Sunday? Again, yeah. on a Sunday? It's the day that you're supposed to rest. God day. Jesus Christ said so. The day to send me money. For my number plan. you see at the bottom of the television, you can do layaway. <laughs> we, we take Discover. God takes Discover, MasterCard, American Express, and Visa. Don't give us food stamps. That's the devil's way of keeping the oppressed oppressed. <laughs> don't, don't actually go out and help somebody. No. Give me the money no. instead. Yes. Yes, I need a new house. I need my fifth mansion. (laughs) Just then, another man comes out of the office and tells the reporters that they can come in. Inside, there's a table of military brass and Dr. Medford. There are about 20 reporters packed in the room, as well as microphones and TV cameras. An older man addresses the reporters and says, Gentlemen, you've been called here to be informed about the most serious crisis the city has ever faced. There's no time for questions. Please listen carefully so you can report the facts accurately to the newspapers. Ugh, things have changed dramatically. Yeah. Yep. He introduces Dr. Harold Medford and our general, General O'Brien from earlier, and other members at the table. An announcer sets up a microphone and says to the camera, We interrupt all radio and television programs for an indefinite period. Please keep your radio and television sets turned on. This is an emergency. Then the general starts talking into the mic into his microphones by the direction of the president of the United States in full agreement with the governor of the state of California and the mayor of Los Angeles. The city of Los Angeles is in the interest of public safety hereby proclaimed. I proclaim to be under martial law as the reporters in the crowd mumble. We cut to various locations around Los Angeles as the broadcast plays on TVs and radios. It's mostly every street stuff that you see in L.A. is definitely the Warner Brothers backlot. Yeah. Yeah. At this point, I'm like, no, now we're back on a set. Damn it. Yep. (laughs) Yep. Now for the reason for this most drastic decision. A couple of months ago, and he just puts it on the table, by the way, guys and gals, it's all out there now. A couple of months ago in the desert of New Mexico, gigantic ants were discovered. These ants are similar in appearance and characteristics to the household and garden pests you are familiar with except they are mutations ranging in size from 9 to 12 feet in length. The New Mexico colony was destroyed, but two queen ants escaped. 
One has been accounted for and destroyed. The other has not yet been found, but it is known to have established a nest somewhere in the storm drains beneath the streets of Los Angeles. It's not known how long this nest has been established or how many of these lethal monsters have hatched. Maybe a few, maybe a thousand. We see people watching as police in the army drive through the streets of L.A. And this right noted or more accurate or more accurately, the back lot of Warner Brothers. Yes. If new queen ants have hatched and escaped this nest, other American cities, even now, may be in danger. These creatures are extremely dangerous. They have already killed a number of persons. Stay in your homes. I repeat, stay in your homes. Your personal safety, the safety of this entire city, depends on your full cooperation with the authorities. Can you imagine getting this information dumped on you? Like, and you're sitting in at your home, Zach, you. you yeah. It's 1954, but you're in Santa Monica right now. Yeah. There are giant ants under your, your feet right now, essentially, and they've killed people. Like, he doesn't sugarcoat it at all. Just gave me goosebumps. Yeah, sh- sugarcoated. <laughs> but it's... Like what the fuck? Dude? Terrifying, it's terrifying. It's I mean that that I yeah that would be like okay we're time to go. Panic in the streets. Panic in the streets. Panic in the disco. Yes. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> I take it you're not a big fan of Panic at the Disco. I like how you're yes. Mm. <laughs> like you chastised me immediately for mentioning that. I'm just not a fan of that, like, watch me sing. Okay, yeah, I get it. You can hit notes. But, like, I guess my question is, again, you now with the family and everything, but if you heard this now, you had yeah. Kristen, you had Bodie, you got Fozzie, you got the, the little dragon thing, you got everything. What are you doing? Like, what, are you staying in your house, or what are you doing? Oh, God, and the, the beach is right there. Maybe go to the beach. There the you beach. go. Drown those motherfuckers, right? Drown those motherfuckers. <laughs> Cut to later that night, and a full platoon of soldiers is setting up positions in the L.A. River by the storm drain. They think the kids are hiding in. We see Dr. Pat Medford drop up, drive up to the staging area with the mom of the two boys, and an MP asks if she has a permit to be here. He tries to move them along, but Ben tells the MP they are cleared to be there. The mom asks if they found her kids yet, but Ben says no. Bob reassures her that they have a lot of people looking for them. He says it might take a while and she should wait at home, but she insists she wants to be there when the boys are found. Bob and Ben walk over to Drs. Pat and Harold Medford. They are talking to someone. who I don't know who this guy is or why he has authority, but they're talking to someone about the best way to handle the ants. The guy seems to think they should pour gasoline into the sewers and light the tunnels on fire. Bob says they can't do that until they find out if the two boys are in the tunnels or not. The dude says, are we supposed to jeopardize the lives of the peop- of all the people of this city for the sake of two children who in all probability are probably dead? Yep. And Bob's <laughs> like how you're like, yep, that, that is actually what you're supposed to do. Yeah, <laughs> I thought you were gonna be on on their side, not this guy's side. <laughs> I, I was not expecting that at all. Zach's like, yeah, that that is actually what you're supposed to do. It's, what do you call it? Collateral damage. Jeez, bloody! <laughs> he was cold as ice. There's times in this. You gotta look 
Ask one little child and just know that Satan has a plan. Just like God has a plan. <laughs> I was not expecting that direction, but okay. I know you weren't. You're welcome. <laughs> Bob says, why don't you ask their mother that question, mister? Ben says, yeah, she's right over there. Yeah. The guy, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the, the guy it would have been around. funny if he just kept going, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the guy turns around at the mother and says, yeah, I see what you mean. Okay. Well, that's not, at least he's not a complete piece of shit like you. I love how he like gives her a look, though. He like looks her over. He's like, I see what you mean. Mm-hmm. Like, <laughs> <laughs> she's going to need some comfort. Uh, Harold chimes in and says that they can't risk f- can't risk fire until they know for sure whether any new queens have hatched. Harold then walks over to the general and asks if they can start now. The general thinks they're ready, but the major says that they haven't heard word from the troops on the north side of the tunnels. A radio operator tries to contact them, but nothing. The general says they are going to start anyway. The general radios to all search units to proceed into the storm drains. We see trucks full of soldiers drive into the large drain pipes. Bob, Ben, Pat, and Kibby and their men follow in jeeps. Um, I thought not having uh, uh, communication with the, the northern troops was going to lead to something. Me too, but I think at this point they're like, uh, we got five minutes left in this movie. We got to hurry it up. Yeah, there's literally like ten minutes left, and they the, the every minute they use every shortest minute. Shortest finale I've ever seen in a movie, ever. <laughs> I know. I paused it at one point, and they didn't even like they didn't even torch the queens yet, and there was like ninety seconds left in the movie. And yeah, I'm like I'm like oh, there's no end credits, I guess. <laughs> no, no, none at all. <laughs> Inside the drains, we see a line of military jeeps driving through the water and using their lights to look around the tunnels. Bob, Ben, Pat, and Kibby all report back to the staging area where Harold, the general, and the mom are waiting anxiously. Each of our four characters are in different jeeps and and different tunnels. They are about a half mile in, and none of them have seen the ants or the boys. We cut to Ben telling his driver to stop and cut the motor. He hears something. He then radios and tells everyone to stop all motors. Ben sits quietly listening, then hears some thumping coming from a drain pipe. He gets out of the Jeep and climbs up to the pipe. He asks where it leads, and the driver looks at his map and says it leads to an area that's still under construction. Ben climbs back down and puts on his flamethrower. His driver radios back their location and that they may have an idea where the boys are. Ben tells the driver to radio and have the construction lights turned on in the tunnel while he climbs in with his flamethrower. We see everyone patiently waiting to hear word from Ben as he crawls through the access tunnel. As Ben reaches the end of the access, he yells out for the kids. They yell back. They're in the construction tunnel. Ben yells back to his driver that the kids are alive. That gets transmitted back to the staging area, and we see the mom holding her face and crying with relief. As Ben crawls to the end of the access tunnels, he hears the shrill chirping of the ants. They are advancing on the two boys. He tries to reach them, but there are bars blocking him from the construction area. He tells the boys that are going to get them out of there, but don't move. Did you notice one boy is acting and the other boy is doing nothing but standing there? Yes. And I'm like, oh, he's frozen. He's with fear. Benefit of the doubt. Benefit of the doubt. Yeah, I, I know. Me too. I kept trying to say it. But in reality, it looks like one kid is acting and one kid is, they put him on set and they said action and he's deer in headlights. 
yeah, he's there was action in his pants because he peed himself. <laughs> exactly. Ben yells back to his driver that there are two ants in the construction site and he smells brood odor, just like in the New Mexico nest. He tells the man to radio back that he must be near the nest. Also, he can't use the flamethrower on the ants because the boys are in the line of fire. Send in the troops. Ben tries to bend back the bars to get to the boys. Back topside, the general and Dr. Harold Medford receive the report and call for all units to converge on Peterson's location. We see all the soldiers in the tunnels mobilizing. We also see men entering manholes in the streets above. The general calls for his jeep so he and Dr. Medford can go meet them. Back in the construction area, Ben finally makes it through the bars and rushes to the boy's aid. He flanks one ant from the left and douses it with flames. He then moves to the other ant and torches that one. Ben then leads the two boys to the access pipe while we see more giant ants advancing on their position. Ben drops his flamethrower and helps the two boys into the pipes, but as soon as the second boy is safe, an ant grabs him by the waist with its mandibles and crushes Ben. We are treated to our third Wilhelm scream in the movie, by the way. <laughs> yeah, it's and it's the biggest letdown of the movie because you don't want to see him get wasted, and he does. It, it's it's like uh, in Jaws 3 when the guy from Manimal gets McConnell Cork or whatever, yeah. McCorkendale or whatever uh-huh. the fuck his name is. Gets like, no, eaten. that's the coolest guy in the movie. Come on. Yeah. Yeah. And dude, every time I watch it, I'm always like, oh, man, not not Ben, you know, like not he, him. Not, he's my favorite character in the movie. And yeah, he, he dies. But I do like that. He saved the kids, though. You know, he did his job. Did Bodie like having the kids in there and everything? Did, did that connect with Bodie at all? Like the kids stuff, like when the little kids no, were in danger yeah, he, at this point, he was, he was just like taking it in, but he wasn't really saying, he, you know, I hey. think when, he, when, when, when Ben, ben, ben. I think <laughs> I did that too. I went, Ben, <laughs> and Bodie's like, daddy, the daddy, what are you quoting? Daddy? Don't interrupt the movie. Daddy. Oh, Good job, Bodie. I respect yeah. that. I respect, but I like that. So he was just, at this point, he was just into it and watching it essentially. Yeah, yeah. Fucking awesome, man. That, and I'm like, Bob, this movie's almost over. Really, yeah. dude. The fact on I can't tell you like the fact that Bodie enjoyed this like made my whole fucking day, man. This oh, makes nice. my whole fucking day. I love Can it. Tell him to his face when you see him in a couple weeks. Next week, I can't freaking wait, man. I can't freaking wait. Bob shoots the ant that has Ben, dropping him to the ground. Bob's men open fire on the other ants in the tunnel while Bob runs to Ben's aid. He asks where the kids are, and Ben says they are safe in the pipe before he dies in Bob's arms. You know, this won't traumatize Bob at all in in the future whatsoever that his friend just died, you know? No. Just man up. Buck up, son. His nose... Never never mind. His his nose just grows. His nose traumatized me. (laughs) Touche. Bob joins the rest of his men. They have formed a firing squad and are laying waste to the oversized insects. The bullets and grenades cause the construction site to partially collapse. Just then, the general and Dr. Harold Medford arrive and tell them to stop the shooting. They can't afford to have the nest cut off. Harold asks if they can use gas, but the general says they can't take the chance. It might poison the whole city. They'll have to advance by foot to the egg chamber to see if any new eggs have hatched. Man, this is like a fucking aliens colonial marine scenario if I've ever heard one. Totally. Totally. As Bob and his team walk further into the tunnels, they shoot at any ants they see. One soldier is crushed under debris, and we get our fourth 
Wilhelm scream from it. (laughs) (laughs) Now Dr. Pat Medford has arrived on the scene. As Bob is leading his men towards the Queen's chamber, the ceiling collapses, cutting him off from the rest of his men. They start digging on the other side while he looks around the chamber. Bob fights off a couple ants with his machine gun until his men can break through and help him. Once everyone is inside the chamber, they come they come to a pit and find three winged queens looking back up at them. So it's like another chamber that's sort of lower than the chamber they're in. Yeah. Bob stops a man from torching the ants. They need the okay from Dr. Medford. We see Harold and Pat being helped through the hole in the wall and walk over to the queen pit. Harold confirms that it's the queen's chamber. Same as we saw before in New Mexico. He says, fortunately, they're in time. All the eggs and queens are accounted for. The general gives the order to burn them, (laughs) and everyone fires up their flamethrowers. As the three queens burn, Bob says to Pat, if these monsters got started as a result of the first atomic bomb in 1945, what about all the others that have been exploded since then? Potential sequel. She says she doesn't know. Her father chimes in with, nobody knows. When man entered the atomic age, he opened a door into a new world. What we'll eventually find in that new world, nobody can predict. Dramatic music as the movie ends. The end. No credits, just done. (laughs) And here's the thing. What I'd actually prefer with end credits this movie let, leaves you no time to linger on what doc, the doctor just said. At Where, all. Whereas it, at least if there were end credits, you could sit there and like let it sit on you. But but it yeah. just it goes to the end, and then it's done because there are no credits at the end. Lights you know? come on. <laughs> like, everyone's looking around. Kids are crying. <laughs> you know. <laughs> but yeah, so so. I love this movie, and it sounds like you did too. But what, what's your what's your final verdict on this one? As as sort of a you know obviously a new new watcher, you know as as you're older, you've seen it when you're a kid. But you know, what do you think of it nowadays? Yeah, it's a time capsule movie for sure, which is which is great. It's it's super fun and nostalgic in a '50s way. And as much as we were goofing throughout the whole thing, it's it's really entertaining. So. If you have seen it, you know it's entertaining, and you'll, and you'll want to watch it again. If you've never seen it, go check it out. It's worth watching. Um, it, it's, it's a, again, it's, it's something that it'll get remade, and it'll have a crazy special effect. It's way ten, it's ten times better than eight, eight-legged freaks ever wanted to be. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and you know all those other kind of big monster movies that came out big monster movies that came out in the late 90s early 2000s which were kind of just bad i think we ushered in a whole new like cobra gate cobra velociraptor or whatever the fuck and just the only standout one of that era is the relic the relic is a yeah for sure because that's like a legit just fictionalized monster and so cool and that's based off a book which is great um but yeah like go with them over anything else remotely and it takes itself seriously which is what we want to see in a monster movie not not parody like sharknado or any stupid shit like that 
Yeah, I, I fear when they remake it, they'll like try to insert comedy or something. And I think this movie works because everyone takes what they're doing seriously. And I think that sells like the ants and everything, you know, the special effects and whatnot. Um, Zach, do you think you have any movies in, in your like in our selection that are this old? Are we going to dabble in the 50s anymore, do you think? Oh, um, I think the earliest I go is early 70s, and that's about it. Okay, okay. For yeah. now, for yeah. now. I mean, this is a bit of an outlier. We are pri- primarily a 70s, 80s, and 90s, uh, you know, show, but but th- this is a bit of an outlier, but I think it's important to have as a part of our collection. Uh, it was meaningful to me, and, and I'm, I, I again... I, I'm so ecstatic that, that Bodie loved it. I think that's really cool. Like, I'm actually kind of excited to show it to my nephew. We're going to be watching him on Friday. Um, I'm actually going to show him uh, Speed Racer, the that the speed ra- the live oh, action Speed okay. Racer movie. Cool. Um, but I, maybe one day I'll show him this, you know, and and maybe he'll dig it. I, I I don't know, but I think it's really fucking cool that Bodie did. Yeah, I think um, it's worth revisiting these old films. Down the road, I'll be pulling out Hammer horror films. I guess the Horror Horror Express was one that... Well, that was actually late 70s, wasn't it? When that That's, movie came out in yeah, mid to late 70s. Yeah. Anyways, uh, go back and listen to that one if you yeah. haven't. And But this was so much fun, and I'm so glad you brought it to the table. And, and we're going to, you know, moving into my next pick will be a totally flip of the script. But, uh, but nevertheless, a, another fun ride. And this was a fun ride for sure. It was a fun ride of going through Satan's butthole. butthole. I knew you were going to say butthole. I knew you were going to say butthole. <laughs> oh, God. We, we've been doing this for way too long, my friend. We have. Imagine how much more I'm going to know you in four more years doing this. Oh. Boy, like, I know you better than a used condom. What? Oh, gross. Uh, Zach, can you tell us about the new show? That you have on two dollar lefty. You like pro wrestling? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Whether we you wait like... for me or for the <laughs> audience to respond. <laughs> right. Hey, everybody out there. Whether you like pro wrestling or not, I've got a show called Territory Marks that I just dropped on $2 late fee. Dustin knows very minimal, uh, below what Corey knows about pro wrestling. And he said, you know what, Zach, we we need to do a sub show on $2 late fee. Why don't you do a show on wrestling? And I pulled the trigger and I did it. I've got a co-host in Paul London. He's a former WWE wrestler current professional wrestler and actor and all-around awesome dude who has a wealth of knowledge of the wrestling scene uh and so this show territory marks is a homage and a love letter to my favorite era of wrestling the 80s and sometimes early 90s of the territories before wwe owned everything there are a bunch of different organizations all throughout the country and so Paul and I, each uh, for each episode, we pick a match, talk about the match, and some pop culture moments sprinkled throughout, kind of like the uh, what what two dollar late fee is known for. So check out Territory Marks; it's a lot of fun. It'll drop once a month um, on on, our, it, reg- on the the regular feed on the two dollar late fee feed, right? On on our regular feed, yeah. And as the you know, we just dropped the inaugural episode. Uh, it's a lot of fun, and as this show picks up speed look for more surprises to come with territory marks and we're going to drop some sweet t-shirts too on t public 
tea public because everybody i've already been getting messages from our logo that this guy video force put out video force is on um nice yeah uh he's on instagram and he makes custom slip covers for vhs tapes and a whole lot of stuff but he made the logo created come up came up with a really kick-ass logo that i'm gonna slap on some t-shirts and uh look great territory marks that that's awesome on the two dollar late fee feeds that's really fucking cool i can't wait to check that out and guys and gals you know we are rocking and rolling over on uh, the carpenter factor uh zach what did we just what did we just record we just recorded body bags body bags, body bags. oh right. god so you know we thought it couldn't get any worse with uh memoirs of an invisible man Listen to body bags, and you're going <laughs> to... Listen to body bags, and you'll find out. It can. I mean, it's a funny, it's a fun discussion. Yeah. Hoofa doofa. No, JC, we always have fun. <laughs> JC is, uh, well, let's see if he's if he hit a single with this one or if he struck out yet again. Well, you'll have to be the judge. Sign up to our Patreon. We are covering every movie of John Carpenter's career, starting with the first one all the way to the wall. The, the ward, ward. um anyways Herb, right the ward yeah but uh but seriously it i, I joke a little bit because i actually have never seen the ward so we'll get to that when we get to that but check out our carpenter factor it's a lot of fun and we're breaking down we don't break down the movies we have a free-form discussion with some structure yeah and uh you know we've got interviews after dark on there as well we've got our wrap-up show which is a lot of fun Mm -hmm. Uh, occasionally we'll have a guest on the show a patron just like you and uh, oh in our at our highest tier you can sign up to uh pick the movies that we break down just like them just like children shouldn't play with dead things just like the next movie that's running down the pipe that i chose um you know we have a lot of great patrons at the highest level that have done that that get to choose the movies that we break down they've all chosen amazing movies crystal even intruder yes <laughs> they've, even they've all intruder. been super fun they've all been uh they've all great. been super fun you guys do a fantastic job of picking things that are like really out of the ordinary from suburbia to bachelor party to monster squad runs the gamut so anyways um consider signing up yeah and if you can't budget's tight i know we're in the middle of we're about to go into a recession or whatever hopefully not uh consider leaving a five-star review on our apple itunes and give us a five star on spotify and uh whatever ding dong podcast you listen to us on and the same goes for two dollar late fee uh at the very least leave a five star review as well any podcast that you listen to it goes a long way. Just leave them a five-star review. Um, but if you can sign up for our Patreon or if you can sign up for $2 Late Fees Patreon, we know we have a lot of cross-pollination pollin- and everything, and it's just it's awesome. It's awesome to see, and I just I absolutely love it. So hope I you'll- love it, too. We, we, $2 Late Fee uh, is, you know, $2 Late Fee and Pad have a lot in common besides me. <laughs> besides me i'm i'm that thing in common my name is zach besides them besides them and as always satan would always say we'll catch you on the dark side call that number two and give us your credit card on the dark side (laughs) 
Be sure to subscribe to Podcasting After Dark and give us a five-star rating on iTunes. Support Podcasting After Dark on Patreon. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Podcasting After Dark. And visit us next time for another installment of Podcasting After Dark with Corey Stevenson and Zach Schaefer. Have you been wondering where's the beef? Well, on our podcast, Throwback Trivia Takedown, you might just find that out, as well as some other things about the 70s, 80s, and 90s. We're a nostalgic-based trivia show that pits two challengers head-to-head in a duel of the decades, with categories ranging from movies, TV and music, to slang, food, and fashion. You're sure to get the best in retro-themed trivia. So strap on your jelly shoes, grab a surge, and walk like an Egyptian to your favorite podcast app and check out Throwback Trivia Takedown. I heard even Mikey likes it.